Turn it on and rip the knob off. Hey guys, and welcome to episode 12 of the Wrestling Memory Grenade. I'm your host, Ray Russell. Joining me once again, Steve Ekstat. We're just three days removed from Clash of the Champions 7, and we've got another two weeks of NWA TV for June 17th and June the 23rd, including the debut of a fifth weekly program for the NWA in the Power Hour. Are you ready for this one, Steve? Uh, absolutely, man. I'm pretty excited for the Power Hour. Something different and new, and I'm excited to go over it. Yeah, and we'll get there in week two uh, this week. And when we finish this week, we're going to be halfway through the, the year of 1989 NWA. Can you believe that? I can't. It's flying by. It's, man. Yeah, we're already uh, heading Time into the... Time flies these... when you have fun, buddy. I suppose it does. And uh, we'll be heading into the second <laughs> half, and we'll have more on that later in the show. But uh, for right now, before we close out the first half of 1989 in the NWA, we'll take this brief break for some important messages. <laughs> Hey guys, and happy Halloween, or should I say happy belated Halloween here on The Grenade as we drop on Mondays. Uh, Ray Russell here from the WrestleCopia Podcast Network, and I'm here on behalf of the Wrestling Memory Grenade to announce our winners. That's right, I said winners, plural, of the special Halloween night free gift giveaway contest. We were offering two free prizes, and so we've drawn two winners at random. And remember... You too can enter to win any of our future free prize giveaway contests by simply following us on Twitter at Rasslin Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. And we greatly appreciate a retweet because the more followers we have, the bigger and better the prizes get, and the more often we can run the free prize contests. And okay, let's not keep everyone in suspense any longer. The winner of our first prize giveaway of the certified Arn Anderson autograph promo pick, and the winner is... Congratulations to MGB Graham from Good Cop, Bad Cop Wrestling Podcast. He's at Good Bad Wrestle. That's at Good Bad Wrestle. Thank you, MGB, for being a follower and listener of The Grenade. We appreciate your support, and we hope you enjoy your prize. And now it's time for winner number two. And the winner of our second free prize giveaway here for Halloween night for the Tito Santana autograph promo pick. This winning prize goes to at Aaron Sheik. Aaron Sheik. Ah, the Aaron Sheik. I get it. Nice. So congrats to you, Aaron. That's at Aaron Sheik. Thanks for following the grenade. A final congratulations to both of our winners. And if you didn't have your name drawn this time around, don't you worry, because The Grenade will continue to offer free prize giveaways for as long as our listening fan base continues to grow. So tell your friends to follow us. Make sure you continue to follow us for chances to win plenty of future free prizes very soon. I ask everyone one final time to please continue to like and retweet our posts. It's that ever-important word of mouth. 
or in this instance, tweet of fingers, that keeps us growing. And tell your friends to give us a listen and a follow at Rasslin Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Congrats once again, and happy Halloween. The Wrestling Memory Grenade is proud to announce the launch of WrestleCopia brand and the WrestleCopia Podcast Network, which you can find over at www.wrestlecopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com, WrestleCopia.com. You've probably heard me mention in passing all the way back to episode one of the grenade, the WrestleCopia brand. You may be asking, what is WrestleCopia? The name derives from the words wrestle for wrestling and copia, which is defined as having plenty or an abundance of. It's an abundance of wrestling history over at WrestleCopia.com as the podcast network gets up and running with a variety of podcasts slated to launch over the course of the fall season. Everything from our show The Grenade to Monday Warfare, The Battles Within, an in-depth look and weekly breakdown of the entire Raw vs. Nitro War. The WrestleCopia News Network is a special feature podcast. We've done a couple pieces already in the Bullet Bob Armstrong special and more recently What a Rush, a tribute to Road Warrior Animal Peace. You can expect more late-breaking news, timely discussions, and tributes to the fallen legends on future episodes of WCNN. We've also got other podcasts being prepped for their debuts this holiday season, including a territory-based show we like to call The Money and the Miles. There's an old saying in the world of professional wrestling that nothing in this business is real except the money made and the miles traveled. In this podcast, we discuss the territory era with shows focusing on everything from show reviews to yearly breakdowns to episodes focusing on some of the rare, lesser-known territories and outlaw promotions of yesteryear that remains an enigma. Stop on over to WrestleCopia.com for all the latest shows and follow us on Twitter at WrestleCopia. That's on Twitter at WrestleCopia for all the latest news and information on the podcast network. On behalf of the Wrestling Memory Grenade and the WrestleCopia brand, we are proud to announce our very own Patreon account. We encourage everyone to stop on over to patreon.com slash WrestleCopia and check out an amazing 14 tiers. And depending on your budget, we have everything from as little as a $1 tier to as much as a $100 tier. Get you all sorts of exciting offers. It really all depends on what offer you value the most. You can do anything from join Steve and I right here as co-hosts for an episode of The Grenade, all the way down to unedited versions of the show, early access to upcoming episodes, beat everyone else to the punch, see what we're saying before everyone else gets to hear it, plus my insanely detailed show notes, which I value ever so dearly. You can even pick the flick, and what that means is, if you subscribe to one of our You Pick the Flick tiers, you'll tell us, me and Steve, what show it is you want us to review. It can be a watch-along on the WWE Network, YouTube, Daily Motion. It can even be a live review of a rare show from my personal archive vault of videos at home. No promotion, no territory, no era is off limits. You can request anything from your favorite WrestleMania to an episode of 1982 World Class to the 60-minute classic between Jack Briscoe and Dory Funk Jr. from 1970s All Japan. Hell, if you want to put us through the misery, we'll even pull a mystery science theater over here and watch Hell Comes to Frogtown starring Roddy Piper. You tell us what you want us to review, and we'll do our own little watch-along and do our best to entertain you guys and give you guys insight in the process. And it doesn't end there. There's a $5 tier, a Power Patron tier. All you have to do is subscribe $5 to our Patreon account, where you, as the Patreon, get exclusive access to the Power Hour podcast that we release anywhere from two to four times per month, with the potential for bonus episodes being added at any given time. It's unfiltered, uncensored, unedited, We say whatever we think, whatever we feel on just about any topic. 
We'll answer your questions, review recent pay-per-views. There's even a little segment we like to call Things Meltzer Said, where we pick apart and debate Things Meltzer Said. All of that, plus other random questions, opinions, and stories are shared here on the exclusive Power Hour podcast. Or, for only $2 more, you can subscribe to the $7 tier, the all-access tier, where for $2 more, not only do you gain access to the Power Hour podcast and everything on every lower tier, but you'll also have complete access to our entire full library of random show reviews and watch-alongs we've done and continue to do as a side project. We review everything from the Flair Steamboat 2 out of 3 fall match from Class 6, all the way down to the Halloween 1985 edition of Saturday Night's Main Event. It's a proverbial hodgepodge of randomness, as you never know what we'll review next. And it's exclusive to the all-access tier or any of the higher tiers over at patreon.com slash wrestlecopia. Check it out now. That address again is patreon.com slash wrestlecopia. That's Wrestle C-O-P-I-A. It may not be the showdown at the OK Corral, but it was the WWF versus WCW, Raw versus Nitro, the Monday Night War, the Ratings War, the NWO, the Attitude Era. While everyone discusses who won the war, it's truly the battles within the war that made this weekly episodic rivalry so exciting. We break it all down from episode reviews to backstage news to those ever-important TV ratings. It's Monday Warfare, the battles within, exclusively on WrestleCopia.com. All right, and we're back, Steve. And since this is timely and relevant, uh, before we get going with the NWA here, I just wanted to quickly address the passing of Johnny Meadows, real name John Condrone, a longtime enhancement talent primarily in the Southern Territories. I'm mentioning this here specifically because we've had the pleasure of watching and taking notes on a few of Meadows' matches here in 1989 in NWA, primarily on the syndicated shows. He had been trained by Rick Connors, who you may remember as the guy who was afraid to take bumps from guys like Eddie Gilbert's Hot Shot and things like that. But Meadows has been around a bit, and he's, he's worked some shows here, here in 1989 along with Rick Connors. Uh, Meadows got his start in the business around 1979. He worked the original Southeastern Territory up in Knoxville against the likes of the Mongolian Stomper, Kevin Sullivan, John Studd, a rookie Barry Windham, just to name a few. The latest records I have for Meadows, at least in a higher profile type territory anyway, go all the way up to 1995 for Smoky Mountain Wrestling, so uh, he apparently went back home to Knoxville before retiring. And according to his social media, or at least his family's social media, Condone died of COVID-19 complications way back on now on Tuesday, October the 20th. And it should be noted that Condone was, was he wasn't just a wrestler. You know, he, he was a, a, a Dove Billboard and Grammy-nominated ASCAP songwriter. That's the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, with long-running stints and touring bluegrass groups like Tranquility Express and the Roan State Boys. So he had a, a musical background as well. He wasn't just doing jobs in the ring. Condrone was around 60 years of age and had been fighting, apparently been fighting the virus since late September, according to the Daily Times. Condrone had been on a ventilator support since uh, around September 28th. So I just wanted to mention that here on the grenade since we've, we've seen him in recent weeks here doing, we, when we were doing reviews. So I just want to say RIP to Johnny Condrone and uh, best wishes to his family. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like he was quite the kind of sore there. Um, music and wrestling. Sounds like he lived quite the life. So, um, yeah, thoughts and prayers with him and his family, and uh, rest in peace. And we're going to move on now. We're going to move into the weekend of June the 17th, and we're just three days removed from Clash of the Champions 7, Guts and Glory, from Fort Bragg. 
And we kick off the show here with the NWA Pro Show for June 17th. And right away we go into the ring with Wild Bill Irwin in action. Gets a win over Bob Emery here pretty quickly. Typical heel squash, pretty solid, uh, nothing special. Irwin wins with that bicycle pump kick in about two and a half minutes. And post-match, Irwin whips Bob Emery with the bullwhip. Ricky Santana actually comes out and makes the save. And it was just, match was kind of there. I like the, the addition of Ricky Santana at the end. But other than that, a nothing match. Yeah, absolutely. And little did I know at the time, this is going to be the start of a TV syndication feud between Santana and Irwin. So we'll right. talk about that more going forward. But yeah. Yeah, they definitely make the, it. Was... Bill Irwin's not a very good, uh, <laughs> very good squash match guy here. Um, but they need these kind of guys to build up for the bigger names to defeat the jobber to the stars, if you will. Bill Irwin's a good hand, not necessarily an entertaining wrestler, <laughs> but he gets the job done. Yeah, absolutely. He is what he is. And like you said, do you need those names to help out those upper echelon talents? So if you give somebody some credibility, it just makes it easier for you to yeah, make those I, wins and seem I think more I, important. Yeah, and I think as you mentioned here with the Santana feud, this syndicated feud anyway, uh, it really enhances both of them because they're feuding amongst each other. It makes them both relevant. And uh, no matter who comes out on that, they both look like decent level players here for guys like uh, uh, Terry Funk, who will see Russell Ricky Santana later on and, and things of that nature. So I'm, I'm happy to see them doing something with guys on, on that level. And we move on in the show with the music video, Dynamic Dudes music video. It seems like they get a new music video every week. And this week, it's the hippie, hippie shake, for goodness sake. They're rolling around on motorcycles doing five miles an hour and, and shopping for helmets after the fact. And they're standing in the, the motorcycle shop with, looking, for, looking at these helmets, and they put them on, and they look at each other, and they act like they're scared. Oh, my God, you're wearing a helmet. And then they start shooting each other with finger bang guns. And I don't know how this is supposed to get the dynamic dudes over. Yeah, I have no idea either. We talk about this ad nauseum as far as what this does for them, and this doesn't work. It's it's sad that somebody with the talent of Shane Douglas and, and even Johnny Ace to a degree, he can do some things if it was a better situation, but this does absolutely nothing to help anybody. And I think you had mentioned to me maybe off off the podcast that you'd pointed out that a lot of these guys they get vignettes on the way in, but once they get in, it's sink or swim. They're in the they're in the ring and going at it. Getting themselves over, like I said, sink or swim. Uh, however, the dynamic dudes here, they've been in action for weeks now, if not a couple months, it almost feels like anyway, and they still have these weekly music videos being pumped out for them. And that's the power of Jim Ross and, and the gimmick he wants to get over, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. He's lucky they have somebody on the booking committee that's invested. I know all of them, some of these talents just come in and they are what they are, but when somebody who's on the committee creates your gimmick and gives you everything and it's his idea that you're going to get as many chances as needed. They're lucky in that sense. Yeah. And my final note for this video initially was, this is the worst video yet. But then I saw next week's video, so I, I scratched that out for here. We'll get to that one when we get to next week. We move on to the next match. It's the New Zealand Militia, Rip Morgan and Jacko victory over George South and Mike Justice here. They, they come out in fatigues, furry white and black boots, uh, boomerangs, a canteen that they pour water all over themselves. They're almost doing a, a crazy gimmick. I, I want to liken it to the Bushwhackers and that they're kind of crazy and wacky and from New Zealand, uh, except they're not portraying baby faces or cartoon characters for the kids. They're just crazy heels, I guess. And if this is, uh, you know, the Sheep Herders 2.0, this is not a very good version of the Sheep Herders. Absolutely not. Uh, the only thing of relevance that they did here was put the boomerangs on top of their heads after they got their names announced, which I thought was pretty funny. It looked cool. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
they switch it up going forward. It seems like they do something different each week. But yeah, yeah uh, they come up with I, something I'm not different. A fan of the militia at all. <laughs> they come up with a different way to pose with their boomerangs every week when they're announced. So I'll give them <laughs> that much anyway. I thought Rip Morgan yeah. had a good look, but you know there wasn't a whole lot of substance there as far as the wrestling goes, and the gimmick really didn't fit Jack Victory at all. But it's still an upgrade from oh. the janitor costume from Secret Service Jack Victory, so I'll give him that much. Yeah, that's not saying much either there. But. Yeah, the, the militia get the win here with a double gourd buster. Good looking double gourd buster. Two victory pins, George South. Match goes just over three minutes. I thought it was decent enough. And like I said, and this goes back to the Bill Irwin match, it's important to have guys like Irwin and the militia. They're not selling the tickets, but they're credible enough to get the bigger stars more of a fight for things like TV and Clash of the Champions and things like that anyway. So these guys are important even if you don't really realize it, you know, if you're the casual fan. We move on with a pre-tape promo from Michael Hayes, and this was so quick, I I wrote, what's the point? It felt like a 10-second promo from Michael Hayes here. I really don't know what he was selling or what the deal here was, but I guess it was just a way to get your favorite guy on the show. I guess. Um, he basically said it was no surprise who their partner was and that it's no surprise that they're back on top again. So very basic run-of-the-mill promo here by Michael Hayes that lasted like 10 seconds. Yeah, and we uh, get a few quick squash matches here. Dick Murdoch over Lee Scott with the Brain Buster, delayed Brain Buster in about a minute, 45 seconds. Lee Scott looking ripped here in the ab department, and I know he's only like a buck 20 soaking wet to begin with, but it just looked like he even trimmed down even more or or cut himself up a little more in the ab department. So Lee Scott, I mean, I don't know. I said it before. Murdoch is just so crisp, and for some reason his arm drags caught me here in this match. Like his arm drags looked great. They weren't Ricky Steamboat-esque arm drags. They just looked realistic though and everything murdoch did even when he was goofing around i mean he just was so good and he did everything so flawlessly so nonchalantly even when he does kip-ups it's like no big deal he doesn't sell it he just it's almost like someone with dry humor they're waiting for you to get the joke and it's like murdoch's you know wrestling and he's waiting for you to to realize how good he is he's not really he doesn't really have to sell it to get it over so good little win there for dick murdoch he's not really doing anything right now but Good win. Ranger Ross takes on the Raider. Doug Gilbert gets a win here. Ranger Ross continues to impress me. I know I say this every episode, and I still don't know what goes wrong when it goes awry for him. But uh, at one point, Doug Gilbert picks Ranger Ross down in, in, a pair of, in a head scissors, and Ross does a headstand, balances himself on his head to escape the head scissors. I thought that was cool. Solid run of the mill squash once again. Combat kick ends it. Ranger Ross gets the win, 2 minutes, 10 seconds. And we're off to Joe Pettacino Nose. And they're hyping the Boston Garden Great American Bash card coming up, uh, I think, July 8th. And we're going to have one of the Triple Chance Battle Royals. The main event, Terry Funk versus Sting, which, I mean, I put that right up there with Terry Funk versus Ric Flair. You get Ricky Steamboat versus Lex Luger on the undercard, plus the roadies and SST. And if I'm in Boston, I know I'm, not, I know I'm probably a WWF fan if I'm living in Boston. But I'm there for this one. Yeah, I mean, it's not for a lack of effort. I'm trying to fix the house show business. Uh, it's definitely not for a lack of effort. Right, and that was a disappointment, you know, that, that I, when I was reading the Observers because I just assumed that they were, you know, starting to really make a turnaround as far as uh, ratings and ticket sales. And no, it was actually the opposite. They were still losing viewers or, or certainly not gaining any viewers. And the ticket sales were uh, extremely down throughout the entire Bash Tour, maybe not the pay-per-view, but most of the rest of the Bash Tour except for maybe some of the bigger cities. I'm not really sure without uh, diving into all the financials, but um, it was very disappointing. And by the end of the Bash Tour, that's when Ric Flair steps in and says enough is enough. And Ric Flair takes over the book. Uh, We'll get to that come August uh, when things turn around with the ratings and and all that good stuff. But it's, I'm not, 
I'm not saying anything's bad though. Like it's been a really good stuff, but it's like you've said over and over and over just because it's good. It's, you know, it's a lot easier to lose viewers than it is to get them back. Yeah. And I think too, they're choosing the wrong places to go. When you totally dismantle your house show business, I would go to where you know you can draw or they're more receptive to your product. I'm not going to Boston, Pennsylvania, and those places. I'm hitting up North Carolina, South Carolina, the the Mid-Atlantic area. I'm going to those places I know I can draw, and they'll probably be more forgiving and understanding, and they'll give you another chance. This doesn't make any sense to go to WWF territory and hoping to God that you're I get it. You got to expand at some point, but you don't go to those places and hope to God you make a, a decent payday at a house show. That's stupid. And um, I think the NWA did do okay in a couple of the WWF cities like Philadelphia and uh, Baltimore at points here, but I don't know. I don't know their track record here in Boston. I don't know when they first came to Boston or how they're doing. And I can't say for sure without again going back and looking at the financials. But I feel like this is when Jim Cornette even says some of the, the big, you know, the, the main arenas that you would expect them to do well in, like Greensboro, Charlotte, maybe even the Omni, I'm not sure. The the tickets there didn't even do that well because Cornette was kind of uh, going off of the, these matches. I don't know that they were all, you know, on every single every single show I mean, of the Bash Tour, but, yeah, it was a similar, like similar think, shows. <laughs> I like to think Funk and Sting and then Luger and Steamboat and whatever else you got going, Roadies and SST. I think... I don't know. I, I just feel like maybe the Atlanta or Greensboro would be more willing to give that a shot. I don't know. I, I, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting when I get through, when I start reading through July and kind of getting Dave's uh, numbers, figures as far as the the gates, and and I'll see even see if I can find something. That, I'm sure Jim Cornette's posted something in regards to that. I, I know he's mentioned uh, actual figures and things, and and compared them to like '87 Bash Tour and whatnot. So. It'll be, I'm curious to go back, and we'll, we'll, we'll look more into that in the next few episodes of The Grenade. We move on with this show, though, and it's the Dynamic Dudes taking on Snake Brown and Keith Steinborn. Normally, Snake Brown's from out of town, but here he's announced from Atlanta, Georgia, and that kind of bummed me out. It kind of killed the mystique of Snake Brown. And <laughs> we've got Teddy Longring side here, and I'm not sure who he's scouting. Take your pick, the Dynamic Dudes, Snake Brown, Keith Steinborn. I'm not sure there's a winner in the bunch. <laughs> yeah, and well, I will say though, like Teddy Long's been out here for such a long time that it just makes you wonder now. He knows, we know he has a team. I think it's even announced maybe next week's, not on next week for us, but as far as TV goes, who he has a tag team, but you still see him out scout. And I know this stuff was taped ahead of time, but I would have liked for the commentary to say, you know what? Teddy Long has his team. He's just out here scouting to get game plans ready, pivot and transition it to something like that. And that would have made more sense because. He already has a team. He already's bringing in guys. Why the hell is he still out here scouting? He's going to have a roster of six, seven, eight people. It didn't make a lot of sense. I think a lot of this stuff, especially the syndicated stuff, just recorded enough in advance that, you know, this just plays. And I'm curious when it, 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 the, whole, the whole thing ends. It has to end soon, I would think. Once the skyscrapers show up here in a few weeks, I can't really see Teddy Long continuing to scout other tag teams. Uh, no, but I, I, I did notice one other thing in this match. The dudes, they're not hated yet. They get some cheers in the crowds, no booze whatsoever. So they're still kind of over. These music videos haven't completely killed them yet. No, and, definitely not. And I'll tell you another thing that kills them is their atrocious double team moves. And, I, and I've talked to, you this, talked to you about this off the podcast before. The height differential between Johnny Ace and Shane Douglas, it's pretty noticeable just when they're standing next to each other. But it's even worse when they're in the ring taking on guys. These guys, like, 
For instance, they try to the dudes try to do a double hip toss. You've got one guy six inches taller than his partner, and you've got a jobber running at you, and he's trying to lock arms with both of you, but one side of his body is six inches higher than the other one. It's, it can throw the, the dynamic of the move off. It can get somebody injured. It can certainly make the move look sloppy, to say the very least. And I think the, yeah. the height differential is really what costs them here in a lot of their double teaming. Yeah, I think so, too. If you had Shane Douglas and maybe like the incoming Brian Pillman together as the dudes, I think it would have worked a whole lot better. I don't know if I'd want to put Pillman in a situation like that, but um, the, just the dynamic and what they were kind of going for with this tag team, I think would have went a whole lot better than having somebody six six out there with Shane Douglas. Doesn't seem like a lot, but it's pretty damn noticeable when they're trying to tag up and do tag team moves. And the wipeout ends it here with the illegal Johnny A spinning Keith Steinborn. Not that it matters. The dudes get the win in about two minutes. And we get a quick promo from Captain Mike Rotunda. He's going to be taking on Scott Steiner here on the program in the main event. And uh, basically, you know, Rotunda's been in a feud on, on and off with uh, brother Rick Steiner since going back last year when Rick left the varsity club. So what did you think? They, they've started initiating these uh, promos earlier in the show to help build towards the main event of the syndicated main events. I like it. It just makes the match more important at the end. And it also gives you reason to stick around. Like, oh, Scott Steiner and uh, Mike Rotunda is going to be in a match. Like, I'm going to see that. And I get two name opponents on syndication. I'm sticking around. So, yeah, I, I, I like the change. I like what they're doing with syndication right now. They're definitely putting in the effort to try and get better. Next match, we have Ricky Santana in there with Trent Knight and continuity police time. Didn't we just see Trent Knight take a flaming fireball to the face from Eddie Gilbert three days ago with the Clash? Well, he's not burned here, and obviously this was taped before the Clash. That's part of the reason, but they don't really acknowledge it or sell it or mention it or say, Jim Ross would do this sometimes. This match was taped before such and such. They don't really do that here. Trent Knight's just out there taking on Ricky Santana. Santana looks solid, nothing to report. Flying forearm ends it. Santana gets the win. Three minutes, 15 seconds, and then... If you remember back at the beginning of the show, Santana came out to help uh, Bill Irwin's opponent. So Bill Irwin's back out here after Santana's match, and he attacks Ricky Santana for interfering earlier. And uh, he chokes out Ricky Santana with the whip and just pulls him back in the ring, and he he lays in the lashes, whips him, and uh, gets the start of a fun little TV feud. Maybe guys that you wouldn't even notice otherwise. It's, It's something. I like it. I do too. Absolutely. Lance Russell recaps Missy Hyatt getting misted. If you remember back a few weeks ago on syndicated TV, Missy Hyatt took the miss to the face for the great Muda, and you guys can form your own jokes there. Uh, it's too bad we saw her at the Clash three, only three days ago, uh, repelling down a, a wall and sliding down you know, a rope and looking amazing in that hot red leatherish looking dress, smiling her ass off as she accompanied, I think it was the Steiners to the ring. So it makes this whole null and void to me. It's three days after we just saw Missy looking gorgeous. And you're trying to get sympathy on her from getting missed it a few weeks back. It's almost like it makes Eddie Gilbert's whole feud with Muda Null and Void with the whole fireball revenge when Missy's already back looking great. And, you know, a fireball would put an end to you. I mean, it would burn your flesh for quite a while. And uh, apparently Miss doesn't do that, or at least not here in 89 NWA. So I just felt like this was poor timing to have Missy involved in any way, shape, or form as part of the clash. Just keep her off TV. It's as simple as that. If she's off TV, then you can sell the mood and mist and make it more important than it was. But you're right, man. She's been on TV and exposed and fine. So why are you showing highlights? Nobody cares. It didn't do anything to her. You know, so they missed the boat there. Yeah, and it didn't even change her demeanor. You know, if she came out with a patch over one of her eyes or 
even just came out with a straight face like she's she's unhappy she's concerned she's just coming out looking and smiling and as beautiful as ever and uh, yeah, it's just it's almost it's, like wwe booking now where they're supermen and superwomen they they get thrown off of, transfer they don't transfer over from week to week you can go get dumped thrown, wherever and, thrown off the uh, top of titan tower and appear on raw yeah the next and then next and then the next week nothing happened so right. That, that doesn't work for me. I'd rather see somebody all bandaged up, sell an eye injury, things like that. At least Rey Mysterio wears a patch over one of his eyes on his mask, so good for him. And here we go. It's the debut of Sid Vicious as he takes oh, on boy. Dwayne Bruce here. <laughs> the future Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker almost wasn't the future Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker. <laughs> Came very close. Sid's debut here, I noticed he was announced as being from Las Vegas, Nevada. That kind of threw me off. I'd never heard that one before, but they mentioned that he's teaming with Dan Spivey. They also mentioned here that he's being managed by Gary Hart, that you don't see Gary. Uh, the announcers claim that Gary's so confident he doesn't need to be out here for, for Sid's match. So I'm not sure if Gary's just not at this taping or what the deal is, but Sid comes out and he wrecks poor Dwayne Bruce, kills him with a power bomb. And instead of making the cover drops a leg drop, which I thought was overkill. It's almost took away from the power bomb. You, the leg drop wasn't necessary. Sid picks up the win here in just over a minute, but it wasn't the match. It wasn't the power bomb that was the biggest move on this, uh, this matchup. It was what happened after the match that I found. Uh, I don't want to say amusing, but it was pretty amusing. <laughs> uh, it was devastating. He picked him up for like a gorilla press and then he just drops him. He, he's supposed to drop him to the floor, but that doesn't happen. He drops him on top of the, near the rope and his perception of, where the apron ends and the floor is going to be is off. And poor Dwayne Bruce, he hits the top rope going down. He hits the apron and then he hits the floor. And uh, Yeah. He could have, he could have killed him if, uh, <laughs> if he wasn't careful. It was just devastating looking. Oh my God. His perception from the apron to the floor wasn't just off his perception of the ring where the ring ends yeah. is off. I mean, the ropes are right in front of you. All you have to do is throw the guy a couple feet to drop him on the ground. And he doesn't even drop him on the apron. He drops him on the rope. I mean, I, I don't understand how you can't, he, he, he goes to throw poor Dwayne Bruce. I can't say he really throws him. He drops him. Dwayne Bruce bounces off the top rope, his whole body. He does basically a 360 twirl and his body smashes the apron. And then it just kind of rolls off like a, a sack of potatoes to the floor. And it's so violent and so disturbing. Uh, I typically try to wait and post videos or, or images the week before the grenade comes out to kind of hype up the next grenade. But I actually posted this one when I was reviewing, do it, taking my notes, maybe two weeks before the grenade comes out. And I posted it like the same day or the next day after I, I grabbed the video. I just couldn't resist getting it up on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade. And uh, it got like 100 likes the very first night. Sid just murdered poor Dwayne Bruce here. And you guys should go check it out on Twitter. It's, uh, it's disturbing, but sadly, I, I will admit it's amusing. Yeah, and I think... I don't even know if it's perception or whatever it is. It's just, he doesn't, he doesn't give, give a, a shit. shit. There you go. We said that in stereo. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know what just... it is. I was trying to be <laughs> polite. Yeah. He just doesn't care, especially here. He's making a statement, you know, first show, first taping, probably he's going to make a statement. And, yeah. Uh, go get yourself over, boy. Made. Yeah, absolutely. It's Joe Pettacino knows more of the top 10. This top 10 hasn't changed in two or three weeks. Same 10 guys. And more on the Grand Slam giveaway. You too can win tickets to the Great American Bash or the library of THE videos. And a VCR. Not a bad deal here back in the 80s. VCRs were not cheap back then. 
And it's uh, no, back to the ring for the main event. It's Scott Steiner taking on Mike Rotunda. Scotty's still coming down to hot stuff. He's accompanied by no one here. No Gilbert, no Missy, no Rick. It's just Scotty one-on-one with Mike Rotunda. Rotunda tosses Scott to the floor early. Kevin Sullivan comes down, takes a cheap shot on Scott. Rotunda takes over with a foreign object. I didn't really care for that. I, uh, Rotunda's just always been such a uh, technical wrestler, even as a heel. I wasn't big on seeing him use a foreign object here. I don't know why. I'm down, I'm down with him hooking the tights, using the ropes. These are things that a crafted wrestler would know to do because he knows his surroundings. Yeah. Rotunda using a foreign object, it just didn't work for me. It felt out of character even as a heel, Mike Rotunda. I agree with you 100% there. So we got Kevin Sullivan down at ringside. So Rick Steiner wanders down to even odds, make sure to take care of his brother here. Rotunda winds up missing a charge in the corner. Scott makes the big comeback. Sullivan, though, trips Scott Steiner up. So Rick goes chasing Kevin Sullivan around on the floor. Sullivan hops up onto the apron. Rotunda winds up colliding into Kevin Sullivan. Scott Steiner with the O'Connor roll. But Rotunda reverses it, grabs the tights on Scott Steiner. Mike Rotunda shocked the hell out of me. Rotunda really hasn't even barely been on TV since the Wrestle War. But Rotunda gets the winner over Scotty. Uh, with the hook of the tights in six minutes and 40 seconds. And I thought this was the perfect amount of time to accomplish what they were going for here. Yeah, the timing was fine. But, man, thank God Scott Steiner had his brother, and, and they kind of team up here rather, relatively quick because, man, his his debut to this company has been nothing less but terrible. Uh, they completely dropped the ball with a guy with this talent. Yeah, um, he de- he debuted, and I can't remember if he jobbed to Kevin Sullivan or he just got look, looked like shit at the end of the match with Kevin Sullivan. I think he, he – uh, didn't he – lose to Michael Hayes or, or something along yeah, those lines. Yeah, he's jobbing to people he shouldn't be jobbing to. And he's been getting I, stuck I in these uh, jobber to the star tag teams with Ranger Ross, Randy Rose, guys like that. No no disrespect to, to those guys, I mean, but you know where they are on the on the card, and Scott's getting stuck with those guys, and they're losing. Scott might not be the yeah. one taking the pin in those matches, but he's still coming out on the losing end. So it's like if it hadn't been for Rick, I don't, I don't know. I, just, I don't know if they were making Scott pay his dues. Or what was going on here? Yeah. Because you could see the talent from the beginning. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he was over. Crowd loved him. I mean, even before he was with Rick, like, they seen him work. And they're like, holy cow, this guy's good. Yeah. So it wasn't for, like, nothing. I don't know. It was weird. Thankfully, he overcame it, and the rest is history. So good for him. But he didn't get the good enough ball to run with at the beginning, you know? No, definitely not. It took him a couple months to uh, get the get a real push once Rick came back from the biceps injury. And uh, we move over to the NWA Worldwide show for June 17th. And the one that's been out there for years, the one that I originally had that I got from a, a friend online, it was incomplete. It was missing three matches from the actual TV program. So it kind of bothered me. So I went and cause I, I kind of remember having a bunch of specifically summer NWA TV programs that I had recorded from years and years ago. And I went and do- dove into my, my storage unit and I pulled out a tape. And lo and behold, June 17th, 1989, Worldwide was on it, and it's complete. I have the uh, complete edition here of NWA Worldwide. So this is the full show. It's uh, never been seen before, to my knowledge, or at least not since June 17th, 1989. So uh, when we get to the three matches that we're missing, I'll let everyone know. Uh, But we do kick off the show. Jim Ross hosts the show by himself. I think Jim Ross is on way too many programs at this point. And he does a singular voiceover commentary for the program. What do you think of Jim Ross taking over all these shows? I don't like it. I mean, you have uh, Lance Russell, Bob Cottle. I don't want to spoil anything, but Gordon Soley's even back Yeah, the Power Hour. So, I mean, you have quite the stable of uh, announcers, even Paul E. for, like, main event. I know he's already on there, but I think he could have picked up another show, too. 
I don't know what the deal is here or why Jim Ross got four out of the five shows, and a couple of them are by himself. Because if, and it, like I said, we can talk about this when we get to the Power Hour, but uh, he does commentary by himself, and Jim Cornette just helps him host like the in between stuff. So. Right. He's doing a lot of solo work by himself. Yeah, and, I don't. Um, I don't care how good you are, unless you're maybe Lance Russell. I don't want to see you on uh, four shows a week. And absolutely, it's just I love Will and Bobby, but if if they were on four out of five, like if they's on everything, pay per views, Saturday main event, yeah, it's just wrestling challenge, prime time, like their act would get stale real quick. And I don't care how good Jim Ross is. Right. His, he commentates the same shit the same way all the time, so that gets yeah. old. I want to hear different people discuss it. Uh, we kick off the show with Ricky Steamboat in a quick squash match over Mark Smith. Steamboat doesn't even bother to do the crossbody here. Pins Mark Smith with a flying chop off the top rope in 2 minutes, 15 seconds. During the match, Jim Ross mentions that Luger and Steamboat have a conflict over who the number one contender is for Flair, and that's obvious coming out of Clash of the Champions. So we'll get more into that with some uh, epic Lex Luger promos here uh, before we get done oh, with yeah. today's episode. And it's more of the Dynamic Dudes video, the Hippie Hippie Shake this week. And just wait till next week, though. I'm telling you, you have seen uh, well, nothing yet. It's your fault that we have this now. I'm pretty good, pretty damn near good quality, like right. almost perfect quality. Yeah. And full, <laughs> uh, thanks to you, buddy. No blurriness. Yeah, and you know, this is the video too, and I, I got to mention this now that you, you brought that up. This is the video where I almost thought I had a DVD in or a uh, an old LP record on or something like that because I thought it the, the video was skipping at one point because there's a point in the video where they have Johnny Ace remove his shorts, you know, the tearaway shorts to show off his speedo. They have Johnny Ace do the same motion six, seven, eight times in a row. And it, I'm like, is my is my video skipping? And I remember this is a VHS tape. It can't skip. And no, it's, uh, it's a part of the video where they just repeatedly, I mean, like more than a half dozen times in a row, show Johnny Ace rip off his shorts and expose his speedo trunks. And still, this video doesn't win shittiest video for the dynamic dudes. So think about that before we get to next week <laughs> this is this is uh i think we need to have like an award show at the end of the year and just oh that sounds good just give out the most the random ideas like the shittiest vignette things hey, like that and, i don't really appreciate that <laughs> then again what do i know i suck shane's dick <laughs> i don't think shane would go for that but uh we'll move on <laughs> don't fuck with the ranch fries and we will move on with uh, Ricky Santana. And yes, he's back from out of town. It's Snake Brown from out of town here. And Brown was extra animated this week. And that says a lot for Snake Brown. But this is a basic squash. Snake gets in some token heel offense. Ricky gets the win again with the flying forearm. They're calling it the flying burrito because this isn't the WWF. It's the NWA. And it's a flying burrito because Manny Fernandez had the flying burrito. But whatever. Ricky Santana, the win here, three minutes, 45 seconds. Bill Irwin's back out here. So they're tra- they're moving the feud over from just... One, not just one syndicated show, but also worldwide now, has the Irwin and Ricky Santana feud going on. And Irwin attacks once again with the bull whip, whips Ricky Santana. I don't know why I wrote it down, but I wrote down the number of times. He whipped him four times, so for anybody who's counting. Pretty cool for the underneath guys. Keeps them relevant here in syndication, having them on more than one show. Yeah, absolutely. It just gives them something to do. And again, it, it makes it elevates them to where the higher-up guys, when they get in a match with them, the, mat, the win's going to mean even more so. I like this stuff. This is the stuff that's good. Those little small syndicated feuds are awesome, usually. 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 Uh, which takes me to the New Zealand Militia taking on Trent Knight and Randy Rose. And this Jack Victory Randy Rose pairing, it just never ends. They seem to fight each other every week in some way, shape, or form, whether they're feuding or not. 
And Pauly dangerously on commentary for this one. He probably wants to forget that he managed Rose or Victory by this point, but it's come to this. Randy Rose is in that complete job guy role now, and I'm not saying they're not protecting him by him not doing the job in the matches, but he's down to just teaming with complete job guys, like like a Trent Knight who, once again, is not selling the burn. I'm, I'm sure this Worldwide was also taped prior to the class show, which makes me wonder, did they know that they were going to fireball Trent? I don't, I don't really know. I'm not going to try to figure out what the hell the NWA was doing, especially with syndication, but double Gordbuster here wins the match on, on Trent Knight. Rip pins Knight in six minutes, 10 seconds. Kind of a lengthy squash match. Wrong team to give that to. And Randy Rose walks away from his first match in forever, concussion-free. And it might continue to be his first match in forever because there's a couple more Randy Rose matches coming up and the poor guy takes more lickings. But I thought for sure they'd work in the boomerang to the head spot on old poor Randy here, but that that's coming too. Yeah. Poor Randy Rose. It's Joe Pedicino knows. If you, I don't know if you paid attention when Jim Ross threw this to Joe Pedicino here, but he called him the round mound of sound. And I got to say, I know that was Joe Pedicino's nickname. I think he even gave it to himself, I guess, just because he knew what was coming anyway. Kind of poke fun at yourself before everyone else does. But Jim Ross must have got a kick out of being able to call some other man the round mound of sound. I think JR probably pay, played an intricate part in getting Pedicino hired just so Ross was no longer the uh, fat announcer. Yeah, you're probably not wrong. He definitely did get to him. And I know Pettisino did a lot of work prior to getting to the NWA here. So he had that nickname before, but you're probably right. Jim Ross said, hey, let's hire this guy. <laughs> I can see it <laughs> happening. And now we get into the part of the episode that was missing. It was just uncovered, like the Blair Witch Project tapes or, or something like that. See how, see how old I am, what I reference. <laughs> but anyways, we kick things Witch off. Project? Yeah, sure. They Remember, they, they uncovered the tapes in the forest? I said, do you see how old I am? The oh, things yeah. I, I go back and reference. <laughs> so I found this, I uncovered this tape. Remind me to think of when they uncovered the Blair Witch tapes. So, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember the Blair Witch project. And what we got here is actually a three matches in a row and a promo in between um, that were missing from the file or the episode that's been out there in, in the tape trader world and just online, YouTube, things like that for many, many years now. And uh, nothing really fancy here, nothing special in these three matches, but it's just, it fills another gap, you know, in wrestling history. So I'm, I'm pretty happy about that anyway. And uh, the first of three matches is Captain Mike Rotunda over Bill Holiday here. Kevin Sullivan on commentary. He doesn't even really discuss their feud with the Steiners. He's uh, out there really just to put over the Funk and Flair program. Kevin says Mike Rotunda is captain still. And the varsity club's disbanded, so they ask, uh, Jim Ross wants to know the captain of what? And he says he's the captain of the ring. So for now, at least Mike's the captain of the ring. By 1990, he'll be captain of a boat somewhere. I don't even know if we ever even see the fucking boat. But that's that's neither here nor there, I suppose. Rotunda continues. He's the captain of Rick Steiner's boat. It could be. That's scary. <laughs> that that's he got scary. when he won the TV title. <laughs> you just made me uh, imagine Mike Rotunda and Rick Steiner in a bathtub together. I just I want to unsee that thought. <laughs> Dear God. Mike Rotunda with the ship boat captain had and. Rick Steiner playing dive, dive. <laughs> Beluga going under the water. Oh, Norman my God. Oh, no. Norman comes in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Then Dan Spivey brings in a six-pack. And play a little howdy duty on your coconut. Oh. New, new meaning to the word coconuts there, too, with all that going on. But uh, we'll move away from all of that. It's getting a little disturbing. <laughs> I thought, I thought Mike Rotunda continues to be more aggressive here. Ever since Wrestle War, ever since uh, he kind of lost 
favor in the booking department, not really getting a whole lot of stuff thrown his way. He was off TV for weeks on end. He is back here, gets a butterfly suplex, and wins the match in only a minute and seven seconds. So Rotunda does get back on TV, at least in the last few weeks. He's back with Sullivan. They're not the varsity club yet. They're still a team. I don't even want to try to make heads or tails of that right now. And just like on Pro, how we got a Mike Rotunda promo before he took on Scott Steiner in the main event, here we get a Gary Hart and Great Muda promo. They're getting ready to take on Dick Murdoch later in today's main event, and this is what they had to say. Later on today, you will have an opportunity to see what many say is the mysterious Muda's ultimate challenge at the hand of the redneck, Dickie Murdoch. They say no one can stand toe-to-toe with the redneck from Texas. But I have a message for everybody. Stay tuned and watch the great Muta destroy another one right here on your television screen. I thought that was simple but effective. Nothing special, but I also wanted to include it just because it's a piece of missing history. It wasn't out there until I found it, so I just wanted to give everybody a little sound bite of that anyway. And uh, yeah, so we got yeah, Muda and no. Dick Murdoch coming up later. I'm surprised he didn't bring up all the racist, stupid shit that he likes to bring up, considering he had the feud with Bob Orton and Gary Hart was managing him. Also, I want to say Muda looked awesome here. He had that, that uh, Jap- one of those Japanese masks on, and he just looked awesome. Right. It, it, it could be like a comedy type mask if you if you do it that way. With Muda having it on, it just added to the mystique of him. I, I thought it was cool. Another match that was uh, missing in action before now was the Steiner brothers taking on Keith Steinborn and the Raider, Doug Gilbert under a hood. The Ra- They do a spot early in the match where the Raider ducks a Scott Steiner clothesline but stands up and runs right into Eats, Rick Steiner's clothesline instead. So I thought that was fun. Just a simple spot, but it was fun. It was very Rick Steiner-esque of the times. And uh, Rick also has fun with Steinborn's hair here, grabs him by his ponytail and whips him around a little bit. We'll see him do that even more on the Saturday night program. But the Steiners, uh, one of my notes here were just the Steiners are scary strong, just the way they pick these guys up without any hesitation. They don't need their help or, or aid in, in getting them up. They just kind of pick them up in one fell swoop and, and throw them across the ring. Yeah, it's scary how strong they are and what they're capable of. Um, two badass individuals. And they do a weird combo spot here. I don't, I've never seen them do it again. Um, Scott Steiner picks up, I'm not sure who it was. I, it might have been Steinborn, but it was one. It doesn't really matter who. He picks one of them up for a running power slam, and he ru- charges into the corner, and Rick Steiner comes jumping off the middle rope with a knee, and he plants it into the back of the job guy as Scott Steiner's coming down with a power slam. Really weird spot there. It was uh, kind of dangerous, too. But then both guys tried to take turns uh, offering the other one to pin. They both wind up both covering the job guy. And then Tommy Young refuses to make the count because both guys are covering. Uh, it was a pretty decent match. Rick Steiner with the overhead belly-to-belly on Steinborn. Then Scott tags in and also hits his rolling belly-to-belly. And the Steiners get the win in just two minutes, six seconds. We finish up the trilogy of missing matches here. Another simple squash. It's uh, Hacksaw Butch Reed over George South. They're still selling Reed as uh, being with Teddy Long here. So I'm not really sure how that works. I know the plan was to put Reed and Simmons with Long before that got changed. And it changed to the skyscrapers. But... At this point on commentary, it's it's kind of sold that Butch Reed's going to be with Teddy Long, even though he's not at this point anyway. Reed gets the win here, diving shoulder block, 2 minutes, 16 seconds over George South, and we'll return right here back to the footage that, that's still out there. It's out there, I believe, on YouTube or, or things of that nature. And it's Joe Pettacino knows, and he talks about the Midnight Express returning to the NWA and also the NWA Top 10, which still hasn't changed. But in, for anyone curious, I'm going to run down the Top 10 right now. Number 10 is Terry Funk, who finally broke into the top 10. Dr. Death, Steve Williams at 9. 
Terry Gordy at eight. Seven is Dan Spivey, who has yet to even appear on TV since WrestleWar, yet somehow went from out of the top ten all the way up to number seven. Not really sure how that works. Hayes, Michael Hayes has fallen down to number six. He could fall down to number 60 for all I care. Eddie Gilbert's up to five, and I can't think of a match he's even won in months, to be honest with you, unless maybe a tag team match. Uh, Muda's number four. Number three is TV champion Singh. Number two, U.S. champion Lex Luger. And number one, of course, Ricky Steamboat with Ric Flair still being the world champion at this point. A lot of the uh, top ten makes sense. Some of it doesn't, but I will say this. The, the entire lineup of talent here in this top ten is uh, night and day from, you know, maybe a month or two ago with some of the guys we had in there. So uh, certainly uh, a lot, lot b- bigger names getting added to the top ten now. Yeah, they're actually starting to use it and utilize it in, like, promos and, and things like that to where the importance is finally starting to where it's said. And I think we'll pick up on more of that as far as that goes when we get to the Luger Steamboat feud more in detail next week. Yeah, definitely they're doing a lot better with it compared to what they were doing initially. Can't really fault them for anything they're doing with that now. And it's uh, main event time, and the odd pairing or the odd opponents uh, across the ring from each other, the great Muda and Dick Murdoch. And this could, I thought going in, this could really be a contrast of styles. But once again, I underestimated Dick Murdoch, and you should never underestimate Dick Murdoch. But Jim Ross points out that all of Murdoch's tours of Japan, he was putting over how Dick is familiar with the, this great Muda style. And I said, well, that's funny. I don't remember seeing Baba doing any spinning roundhouse kicks or Inoki busting out any moonsaults, but apparently that's the uh, Japanese style. Well, apparently everyone in Japan does what Muda does, which is simply not true. But Dick Murdoch with another kip up in this match. We saw him do that a few weeks ago. Throws a dropkick too. Sends Muda to the floor. Just so good, Dick Murdoch. I, I've already said that earlier in a squash match, but just so good. And it's uh, back and forth. Uh, Gary Hart tries to trip up Murdoch again. They did this way back at Clash 6 in the Murdoch-Bob Orton match where Hart had tripped up Murdoch and Orton landed on top. And uh, Orton had stole that pin. They tried to do the same spot here. And this may not be what they were going for, but this is how I saw it. I created my own psychology for this. I, I thought it made sense. Once again, Hart tries to trip up Dick Murdoch as he has uh, Muda up in the air for a brain buster or a suplex or something along those lines. And Murdoch senses it this time, so he kind of drops Muda. But Ludo uh, winds up landing on his feet. And Murdoch pulls Gary Hart up onto the apron. Tom Young winds up going over with Gary Hart, and that's when Muda sprays Murdoch uh, completely covered in green mist here. And Murdoch goes down, but you have to be blind not to see the green mist because it is all over Dick Murdoch. Oh, yeah, and it's like pouring down his chest because it got wet and sweat and mixing in with it, and it's all over the place. It's uh, (laughs) Yeah, you got to be blind to miss that. Yeah, I'd say there's like a two-foot radius of green mist on Dick Murdoch from his forehead to uh, just below his chest. And they sell it like the referee doesn't see it. But uh, hasn't the referee seen Great Muda miss like 10 jobbers at this point right in the face? I mean, he does it right in front of the referees, never been disqualified for it. So I'm not sure what the big deal is here that the referee didn't see it. Now he, Tom Young has to look like an idiot and ignore the fact that there's green mist everywhere. But Murdoch goes down, obviously, sells the blindness from the mist. Muda does some stomps and then just pins Murdoch randomly after seven minutes of the match. And if Tommy Young couldn't see all the green shit on Dickie here, then he should be fired along with Teddy Long. There's no way you can't see it, and that's that's insulting the intelligence pretty significantly. It's one of those things like, come on. If you have a casual person in the room with you, like, oh, that shit's so fake. You can tell. They know he's blinded. Like, But I guess it goes back to if you, if you didn't see it, you can't call it. So, Yeah, I suppose maybe Dick just threw up on himself. I mean, maybe one Coors Light too many that day. It's possible. 
But I just used to drive me nuts whenever uh, the referee would turn around and the ring would be blatantly covered in salt or, you know, or, or mist. And the referee just kind of has to ignore exploded pieces of a chair laying everywhere. Uh, I don't know. The guitar. Sure. Take your pick. Yeah. Uh, post-match shenanigans. See Scott Steiner come down. He comes in to actually just check on Dick Murdoch, but Gary Hart kind of gets in the way. And Scotty corners Gary Hart from behind. And from behind comes the great Muda who attacks Scott Steiner and digs his fingers into Scotty's eyes. And they're, they're selling it like it's some sort of um, nerve hold that he's using on Scott Steiner and taking him down. Meanwhile, Dick Murdoch's wandered out of the ring. He's still half blind. Picks up a chair, though, brings it back in the ring to run Muda off, and Murdoch's sw- swinging this chair so wildly, I swear to you, he just misses clocking Scott Steiner in the head on two occasions with it. I mean, he would have split him open good had he caught him with it. But um, Scott tries to stop Dick. Murdoch has no idea who has a hold of him, so Murdoch takes Scott down to the ground, and they kind of have a little tussle as Scott's trying to alert Dick Murdoch as to what's going on here, and that's pretty much the end of the segment. And it sets up, uh, I think, next week's uh, main event. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's Scott uh, Muda. Was, yeah, you're right. Another thing that was cool here was Murdoch had that chair and he hit it, hit the post with it, and uh, he yeah. did a really good job of selling that he was blind. He did better than Missy did, but yeah, very entertaining. Even though like he got blinded, it was still really entertaining to see how he handled it. Yeah, and I, I'm digging the slow build of Muda here. He's been here this long now, and we're just now seeing him get into that Dick Murdoch echelon of tier, if you will. Uh, the next wave of talent, so to speak. He's on the level of Murdoch now. He's in that mid-card level. He's working his way up slowly. And uh, pretty soon he's going to be thrown right into the the main or semi-main with Sting, as you know. But right now I'm just I'm loving that slow build because we get to watch Muda start from the ground and just take each and every person in the company out, which has been so cool up until now. Yeah, I agree. And it's just sometimes you want to rush people and it can, um, it can cause them to not reach their potential. But when you give a slow build and just build that anticipation, build it, build it, build it, increase the level of competition slowly. Like that's always to me, the better option. I mean, it's not like you don't have time. I mean, he ain't going anywhere. So you might as well slow build him and get it to where that anticipation and the peak to those big feuds is at an all time high and then capitalize on it. Um, yeah, I think it just makes Muda look like patient. a, he's not a big guy, but I think it makes Muda look like a monster as well. Like just who's going to stop this chainsaw, this buzzsaw. Yeah, absolutely. And we head into the nighttime program. It's the final 705 episode of World Championship Wrestling. Next week, we're going to go back to 605. Uh, we've been at 705, I guess, since the beginning of the year. This is for June 17th. This was taped on June 15th, the day after the clash. So everything's up to date. Everything makes sense here. It was taped in Augusta, though rather than at center stage. And so we're in a, a real arena here with uh, kicking things off again with the dynamic dudes once again in the ring with Snake Brown and the Raider. The New Zealand militia wind up coming to ringside because that's a feud everyone wants to see. They also use this match to announce Nikita Koloff's wife has passed away. And they actually put an address up on the screen to send flowers and cards to. And I'm all for the uh, sentiment. Uh, and it's sad that, that this has happened. But why not give it its own little segment between matches rather than in the middle of an actual match? If they had time to edit in the address like they did and do the Jim Ross voiceover, then they had time to splice in a minute or two segment of Ross talking. It just seems so weird that you're in the middle of a match and they literally take a a screenshot and, and put it over top of the match. You can't see the match at all. This address is not over top of the match. It's just on like, I don't remember, a blue backdrop or whatever. So they've cut away from the match. So instead of doing this between matches, I thought it was really weird. They did it here over. I'm not complaining it was the Dynamic Dudes match. 
but uh, they do it here over the match. It seemed really weird to me. I agree with the sentiment, and I'm glad they did say something to her, but it just seemed like it was so, like, a low priority. Yeah, we'll just splice it in on top of this Dynamic Dudes match, say we did something and move on. Like, it didn't feel genuine or authentic, and that's that's sad. Yeah, I'll agree. You know, I'd make a joke here that they even did it during a dudes match. I mean, there's nothing funny about this, obviously, but it just seems, it just it just felt really, really weird that they chose to do this during a match. And uh, speaking of the match, the, the finish sees the, both dudes in the ring. They're looking to do a double-team move here. And Shane tries to slide under the legs of Snake Brown, and for some reason his momentum just stops halfway through his, underneath his legs. So Shane goes, starts, he starts to slide under Snake, and his body just stops all at once. <laughs> so Shane has to kind of like push his hands and finish sliding through behind him so that they can uh, land a double drop kick and a wipeout on Snake. Johnny Ace gets a pin on Snake Brown. Match goes 2 minutes, 52 seconds. Dynamic dudes pick up the win here. I know we trash the dudes, but they're not getting – I mean, they've gotten it a little bit. I feel like those matches were better, like the Lee Scots of the world, but fighting somebody like Snake Brown and, and things like that is definitely – the Raiders solid. Doug Gilbert's a solid, a solid performer. But wrestling somebody like Snake Brown is not going to help somebody like the Dynamic Dudes. You need a couple of guys in there that can go fast and keep up the pace with them, and Snake Brown's not that guy. So um, they didn't get any favors here this week with that match. Yeah, Snake Brown's uh, more of a character job guy. He's not out there to make you look good taking bumps or keeping up with you uh, like a Ricky Steamboat or uh, against the Rockers or, or something like that. He's not going to keep up with the, the flow of the match, and he doesn't hear with the dudes either. Not that their their pace is anywhere near the speed of a Steamboat or Rockers, but it is up-tempo, and Snake's just not in that. He's He can't handle that department. He's, he's good for a quick junkyard dog squash. It would be perfect there. Not only is the match going fast, he can handle some headbutts, and obviously it's gimmick versus gimmick. I could see him, you know, going in there and doing the one-minute squash the sting. No issues there. But, yeah, in this instance, he's fought the dudes twice now on uh, just this week, and uh, he's not doing them any favors. Just poor placement of the, the job guys uh, for the dudes this week. We move on to highlights of Ric Flair interview from Clash of the Champions 7. It's at home. Jim Ross, of course, interviewed Ric Flair, and that's where Flair announces that on July 1st he will have a press conference and announce his future in the uh, business. And uh, it's either going to be retire and vacate the NW world title, or he's, or he's coming back to defend it, and we'll see what happens on that. That'll be the next episode of The Grenade. It's on to Terry Funk in the ring against Cougar J, and uh, Gary Michael Capetta announces Terry Funk is being from the Double Cross Ranch in Pecos, Texas. And Jim Ross has to be a wise-ass on commentary and point out that Pecos is not near Amarillo. It's actually Canyon, Texas. So there you go, Jim Ross. You know, Correcting guys that can't hear you, can't defend themselves, you asshole i'm glad i'm not the only one who feels that way about jim ross <laughs> no definitely not typical solid funk squash here running pile driver ends it in about three and a half minutes i've seen online a lot of people quote this match as being five minutes i don't know what's what that's about i mean it's just a minute and a half difference on a squash match it just kind of threw me off it made me question like what is there something missing but it didn't appear so so i'm pretty sure terry funk gets the win here cougar J in just three and a half minutes and Funk was really getting some heat here. Fans were throwing shit at him, and, and I don't know if you caught at the end of the match. Oh, Funk yeah. gets in the face of a fan, and this fan just deadpan, just dead stares him down. And there's like a 10-second stare down between the two. And just as Funk starts to walk away, this fan just goes, fuck you. <laughs> I just thought that was so <laughs> funny. The audio, you don't, can't pick up the audio, but you can't mistake what he says to Terry Funk either. And it was just, I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, I did too. 
I thought it was great. Funk just stares at him. He doesn't move. He doesn't flinch. He does nothing. He's like, you're not going to do anything to me. I'm not going to do anything to you. He kind of, he knew, he knows, obviously, but he, he sold it great. And that guy, that fan did get that FU in there. But um, yeah, awesome, awesome segment right there. A segment that wasn't awesome, maybe the only non-awesome Terry Funk segment since he's been here in the NWA follows this match. And it's just really a promo that I feel like Funk probably thought about in his head. He thought it sounded good. Uh, but the delivery, I'm not, you know what? This is an opinion. Uh, I didn't uh, care for it very much. I just thought like it was kind of too far out there and some of Terry Funk's promos can be out there, but they're still damn good. But this one's just, I don't know what he was really going for here. He tells the story of a dream he had where he was sitting with his, his uh, dead father on a porch. Some lady wanders up to their house who had been in an accident or limo. I don't know why it was a limo, uh, but she hit, she hit what she describes to be a jackass, but Terry Funk corrects her that that was no jackass with the long floppy ears and the big nose and, and the horrible breath and things like, no, that was Ric Flair that you hit with your vehicle. And, uh, he kind of moved away from that at the end of the promo. The end of the promo was okay, but this was probably the only Terry Funk promo so far. And that's a lot of promos though. They say, you know, a squirrel, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while or an acorn every once in a while. Um, this is the exact opposite. Every once in a while, even the best promo guys maybe don't cut the best promo. And that was the case here for me with this promo and Terry Funk. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I kind of got bored with the whole dream. And it, it just felt like he uh, he must have got a pop from the boys or something in the back when he did the Jackass promo a couple weeks ago. Or the fans must have said maybe said something to him. So he's trying to come up with another idea or another a creative way to say the word Jackass. To be like, ha-ha, I can say Jackass and not get in trouble, that type of deal. And I know it's something Funk does. He's done it most of his career. I think he even did it late in WCW when he came back in like 99, 2000 or whatever. I remember hearing that. Yeah, it didn't go over nearly as well as the first one. Um, now, if he did cut all the dream shit out and just went to the end where he called him a gutless individual and uh, that flair needs to stick his neck out one more time just so Terry Funk can get him one more time. If he would have just stuck to that, it would have been a lot better. But the dream part just kind of lost me. I didn't like it. Yeah, and we move away from that uh, interview, and we'll go back to the ring. And it's the Steiner brothers, along with Missy Hyatt and her cleavage this week. My God. And double. And she takes or she takes on the Steiner brothers. You can see where my mind is. The Steiners take on Fred Avery and Keith Steinborn here. And Robin Green is back, and that's that nerdy fan Robin Green woman, the future woman. She's ringside for this match, and she gets uh, Rick Steiner's uh, Letterman jacket once again this week. Jim Ross actually mentions her by name here. Not sure how, how he got her full information, her full name, first and last name. A little bit creepy for me. But uh, Jim Ross just casually, uh, we found out her name's Robin Green, folks. And I'm just like, how the, I don't know. I don't know what the whole point and of that, that was. But. And if that didn't give it away as a work, then I don't know what it is. A name, Robin I, I got I got when this shit was a work a long time ago. Just just for say by the bell looking oh, yeah. gear. <laughs> right, yeah, I get you, but I mean. No, I know what you're saying. Green, like, come on. If people want to spend their belief in, okay, yeah, maybe she's just a fan, kind of like Sapphire. Uh, That's a plant. You know it's a plant, but you you forgive it. But then you say, well, her name's Robin Green, like a nerd named Robin Green. Hmm. Yeah. Not buying it. So this match was fun. It was Scott Steiner out there, single leg pickup on Fred Avery, just picks him straight up near 300 pounds at least is Fred Avery and just. Picks him straight up in the air like, like a feather. Didn't need any cooperation or anything. Just scooped him and picked him up by the leg. 
And then a Rick Steiner with more fun on Steinborn grabs him by the ponytail again here on this program, whips him around in circles. Uh, I'm betting, and you know, Steinborn was not confronted prior to the match. Rick never went and got his consent to do this uh, beforehand. This was just something Rick decided he was going to do, and Steinborn wasn't going to tell him he couldn't do it. Uh, I don't think anybody is. <laughs> so I'm Rick not. gets Rick gets goofy as if you know when does he not? He starts uh, raising up his, his singlet a little bit, showing a little leg. I wasn't really sure what was going on here. Then he grabs the top of his singlet and pulls it down like he's showing off his boobs. And I was like, what the hell is he doing? I wasn't really sure if he was interacting with Robin Green, but the fans are going nuts, and all of a sudden they cut to Missy outside, who, oh, my God, if I hadn't said that already. I just, I don't know, man. Just was she extra hot this week or what? I think I prefer her the following week, but she was looking just as nice here too. Um, oh, it gets better. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. But uh, <laughs> she's starting to show more for sure. But, yeah, I was like, what the hell is he doing? I just thought he was having a good time. And I, I initially thought what you did with Robin Green, maybe he was doing something for his girlfriend. And um, now Missy's down there lifting up her skirt a little bit, flashing her, taking her uh, jacket off and things like that. Um, yeah, teasing like she's going to uh, show her uh, pumpkins, for lack of a yeah. better term, here in this Halloween season. Um, JR calls her outfit bodacious indeed. And he was super pervy on Missy here in 89. And I hadn't really noticed that uh, just how he drooled over her. I mean, it's almost weekly that he has uh, either a hidden comment or just a a blunt comment uh, about not, not just putting over how gorgeous Missy was like maybe Vince McMahon would do over Elizabeth. This is uh, this borderline pervy. Some of the things Jim Ross says where he talks about her, uh, she has the biggest, uh, beautifulest pair of, uh, eyes he's ever seen you know things like that he said over the weeks so it just seems yeah, out of place said, for a baby face announcer yeah and he said like two things really stood out to me like it was like her integrity and her smarts and things like that so yeah it, it definitely feels more like vince towards elizabeth than it did maybe gorilla towards elizabeth gorilla just said she was beautiful and that was it elizabeth was right. a beautiful woman and yeah. it was kind of in a classy positive way but when she came out with Vince, it's like, oh my God, would you look at her? That type of deal. Like, yeah. You know, look at that. Yeah. Yeah. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I, I remember Jesse, I think at one of them, he was like, at least you don't drool all over like that McMahon does. That's kind of like what JR is doing here. And you know what? I can't say that I blame him. I mean, Missy was smoking hot in 1989. Good Lord. And uh, we go on to a promo from Paulie Dangerously here. He's sporting a tennis racket now. Like the one he knocked Cornette out with, uh, Clash 7. He knocked him out, and they exposed the tennis racket to have a horseshoe inside of it. And Paulie acknowledges the, the game of one-upmanship between the SST and the Roadies at this point. And the Roadies had cost the SST their match in the title tournament after the SST had cost the Roadies. Paulie claims the Roadies eliminated the SST because the Roadies feel like they can beat the Freebirds for the World Tag Team titles, but they know they can't beat the SST, so... Paul mentions how he took Cornette out at the clash and he's going to take Paul Ellering out next. And I think he called himself the manager basher or something along those lines here in this promo. Yeah. He started calling himself the manager basher. And then he said that this means war with the road warriors. Oh yeah, and, This uh, means war. Well, he didn't just say it. He, he yelled it into, into the screen as he does uh, repeatedly in the upcoming match. Yeah. So this is the start of the war shit that he came up with. And I, I just thought of this applying war games maybe mm-hmm. is he foreshadowing a little bit to what we are heading to uh yeah, we'll have to wait and see, i know you I know guess. the answer to that yeah. and 
I, I didn't really pick up on it until I just thought of it right then. But yeah, it seems like he's planting the seeds there a little bit, which makes it a little less annoying. I, I will say, I thought it was annoying, but now that I think about it, it's actually really good by him. Uh, we move into the ring. It's SST with Pauly dangerously taking on our first look at the tag team. Well, at least this week, a tag team of rock hard Rick with no last name and Mike awesome. Yes. That Mike Austin, the future ECW superstar, Mike Austin, the future fat chick thriller. Mike Awesome, the future uh, FMW gladiator Mike Awesome. He's here as a job guy in 1989 NWA. And my first notes for this match is as SST come down is the WWE Network music is awful here. It kills the Samoans who are using the Halloween Michael Myers theme, which was just so fucking awesome uh, when they when they use that, that theme. And this music, though, I'll give them this much credit because sometimes, like the Road Warriors music, it sounds nothing like Iron Man. At least this music, it didn't sound like the Halloween theme, but it sounded like that secondary Halloween theme, kind of like where things are just observing rooms and you hear that little slow piano music. It almost kind of sounded like that, so I give them a little bit of credit, but still, I know they can't use the Halloween theme, but it just killed it here for me. Yeah, it was really close. I mean, like you said, it's secondary. It's nothing like uh, how terrible like the rude music is on oh, the network. Oh, God, no, so and they've not, changed that again. They've changed that again on the newest prime times they've they've released. It's uh, even worse than the other one. It's yeah, oh, it's Lord. Not, yeah, it's not good. But we're here in '89 NWA, so I'll stick to that for right now. Maybe we'll talk a little more bit more about Rude on the uh, the watch alongs or something like that on the on the Patreon. But the Samoans are out here. They're eating pineapples. They're attacking the job guys. They toss a rock hard Rick uh, straight into the air, almost like you're going to throw him for a backdrop. But he comes right down on uh, damn near on his head, almost breaks his neck. Polly dangerously, like you had mentioned. This means war. He screams this repeatedly into the camera throughout this entire match, and it is irritating to say the least. And um, it was funny, though, watching Mike Awesome getting manhandled by, like, the Samoans. At one point, Fatu grabs him by the throat and picks him up in the air and chokes him in the air. And it's so funny to watch Mike Awesome be the, the rag doll, you know, a guy the size of Mike Awesome playing the job guy. It's definitely weird knowing where Mike Awesome ends up. Yeah, when he picked him up in that chokehold, he just dropped him like in a chokeslam. Uh, it's a movie you didn't really see back then. The chokeslam wasn't very prevalent. And, um, yeah, it's weird. Mike Austin was out there rocking the red and yellow. Hulk Hogan, he is not. <laughs> no, but they, they'll let the job guys get away with that because they, they, they encourage that, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Samu here with the back superplex and a diving headbutt. Tags the Fatu, who finishes things off with a diving splash on Awesome. Who wants it this point? Like I said, he's a job guy at this point, so it means nothing. Mike Awesome's just doing a job. The Samoans get the win in two minutes, 32 seconds, and then there's some pineapple smashing for fun after the match. And that's uh, another SST squash as Polly continues to tell us this means war. It's on to the fabulous Freebirds. That's Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin, along with Terry Gordy in their corner, taking on Randy Rose, who's now stuck with Mark Smith. That's not a job name. I don't know what is. And poor Randy Rose, stuck with guys that are named Mark Smith at this point. Randy does okay to get things going, but he tags in the job guy, and that was the beginning of the end, obviously. I don't really have to tell you that. Terry Gordy actually lays Randy Rose out on the floor so he doesn't have to get back involved, and, and I guess the concussions continue for poor Randy Rose as he gets wiped out by Gordy on the concrete there. Meanwhile, Hayes teases the DDT on Smith before he tags to Garvin. Garvin comes in. He teases like he's going to go for his old brain buster finisher, but he remembers, no, no, that's not my move anymore. He has to learn the DDT. Garvin lays in the DDT on Mark Smith. Freebirds get the win in two minutes, 11 seconds. I'd call this bad, but they'd had to have done something for it to be bad. And they did almost nothing here. This was a nothing match. Yeah, it wasn't. It was just there. 
really nothing special. And I'm down with Jimmy Garvin enhancing the Freebirds, or at least uh, aiding and helping the cause, so we don't have to watch Michael Hayes in singles action. I can't get into this badass Jimmy Garvin role. I just, I'm just not buying it. And I'm cool with him in the birds. Just, I don't like this badass Jimmy Garvin. Let Terry Gordy do the badass character, and you guys kind of play the the chicken shit heels. And I don't mean like overly uh, scaredy cat bitches, but that was Jimmy Garvin's gimmick back in world class. He was the chicken shit heel, you know, the pretty boy type gimmick. And now he's trying to play, you know, badass Jimmy Garvin. It's just not working for me. I don't care how many how many vitamins he takes, brother. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's no lie. He's pretty jacked right now. Best he's ever looked, I think. Oh, he's definitely put on some weight since he disappeared after the Bash Tour last year, that's for sure. We get highlights of Eddie Gilbert trying to throw a fireball to Great Muda from the Clash, as we've already talked about. He winds up flamethrowing uh, <laughs> Trent Knight instead. So that's just setting up the Eddie Gilbert and Great Muda matches on the Great American Bash Tour. I think at some point here, and I, I it's in my notes further down the line here in this week, these couple weeks of TV, but we learned that uh, on the Bash Tour, it's going to be Eddie Gilbert versus the Great Muda on most of the shows, and there's going to be a coin toss that decides the stipulation of the match. If Muda wins the matches, it'll be a dragon-shy kendo stick match. If Eddie Gilbert wins the coin toss, it'll be a coal miner's glove match. So um, that's basically where we're going with these two. Yeah, and I wonder, do you know the breakdown of how many times they did each one? Uh, I'm curious to know that. No, I'd have to go back in and look up the results to really know that. I would imagine since they've really been selling the hell out of this Dragon Shy match, and they'll continue to do so here with an angle coming up between the two. I'm imagining that was either on every stop of the tour, because you know the heels always won coin tosses. Just look at every war games that ever existed. However, uh, at the same time, I don't know if they made a stop in Memphis. Maybe Eddie Gilbert got the win, and maybe he got the coal miners glove match there because they were in, you know, not necessarily his hometown, but his uh, home territory at one point. So who knows? I, I, that's a very good question. I'd like to go back and look it up myself. I'm, I'm going to be going back here once we get into July and, and looking into all the Bash Tour results. I'm really curious to see some of the gates and also some of the matches that might have changed from, from city to city. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be a cool thing to maybe throw together, Patreon-type deal. We can talk yeah. about that later. Yeah. Um, we get a promo coming up here next. It's the great Muda and Gary Hart, and this is where Gary Hart talks about and they mentioned this in passing a, maybe a week or two ago that – the great Muda's father was scarred. Uh, they don't they don't call him Kabuki anymore. We're not naming him by name. It's kind of like WCW ninety five. We're we're not saying Andre anymore. Now that we've planted the seeds, you guys can just keep figuring that out yourself. Uh, but they're saying that Kabuki basically used to wear the face paint because he had been burned terribly bad in a fire, and that's why Muda fears the fire. So he fears Eddie Gilbert's fireball at this point. So that's the story. And I grabbed the soundbite. I'd like to listen to that real quick. Eddie Gilbert, you have got yourself more trouble than you could ever dream about. In Fort Bragg, North Carolina, guts and glory, the clash of champions, you came like the gaijin you are from behind and tried to burn the great Muta. You know, and I know, that if there's anything that terrorizes the great Muta, is the fire in the face, because that's how his father was scarred for life and now you try to scar the great muta well let me tell you something eddie gilbert the next time you and the great muta meet we know you will bring the fire but i want you to think about what it will be like when the great muta puts the deadly green spray in your eyes Steve, you came like the gaijin you are. 
What did you think of this little <laughs> quick promo here and uh, Gary Hart setting up uh, the Eddie Gilbert and Gray Muda feud for the bash? Uh, I think Gilbert's getting – or not Gilbert, Gary Hart. I think he's getting better. I, I think this is – when I first went through 1989, Gary Hart was one of the guys that stood out as somebody that I thought was awesome. Talk to you more, and the more I pay attention to what he's saying, it does make sense, like what you you told me about him. But here, like he's just starting to get away from all the stupid shit that he did with Dick Murdoch and mm-hmm. and Bob Orton, and he's just getting to the point of it, it's business, it's personal now, but it's also business, but it's personal because you try to burn Muda like his dad got, and that's not acceptable. So he's keeping that stupid crap out and just cutting good promos, and I'm really enjoying it. it it's it's good stuff. Yeah, for me, this is probably Gary Hart's best work since, like, 1982 with Kabuki and the Magic Dragon. So, But it's funny how the first half, or at least the first several months of 89, I wanted nothing to do with Gary Hart. Even the Bob Orton stuff, I, I could do nothing but shit all over the promos and just the whole direction he was taking. But it's it's a completely different direction here with Muda. And I don't know what makes him take different directions with certain guys. But uh, he has the, he's the right guy here. And I, I can only praise heart for what he's doing with muda anyway as uh we move on with the show and it's the midnight express over jeff james and jim bryant tag team mania here tonight by the way six matches so far in the show and five of them tag team matches and they hit a nice looking vegematic on james and the match ends in two minutes 23 seconds decent squash by the midnight express i think they're still trying to get their uh the rust off a little bit I don't count anything that happened at Clash 7 just because of the weather, the, the heat in the building. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to count that as anything for anybody. They all suck for the most part as far as in-ring. Like, they did their best, but you can only do so much when it's probably 200 degrees in there. But, yeah, I think uh, they're still getting that, that rust knocked off a little bit. Up next, it's our first TBS look, I think. Yeah, because he just, he just debuted at the Clash. So this is our first look on TBS, uh, a Saturday night program. At Norman the Lunatic, he takes on Bob Emery here. Teddy Long comes out. He's the keeper of the keys. He's holding the keys in the air. And it's what controls Norman. Norman doesn't want to go back to the insane asylum so or whatever, wherever the hell he's, he came from. And so Teddy Long's holding these keys. It's what keeps Norman from going crazy. It's what controls Norman here because he knows that if he s- steps over his boundaries, uh, he's going back to the, the home or, or whatever you want to call it. And it's But if he's truly crazy... How do those keys control him? I, I don't understand that. That's a plot hole to think about. But Norman heads, heads to the ring. He's brushing his teeth or what's left of his teeth. And they get a close-up of him basically brushing uh, his missing teeth area. And out of nowhere, he just spits slobber, saliva, whatever, all down his face. Absolutely disgusting as he enters the ring. And Jim Ross lays in the comment yeah. once again that Teddy Long and Norman have one thing in common. They're both missing all their front teeth. So I, I got a kick out of that, but just disgusting uh, stuff here from Norman the Lunatic upon his uh, entrance into the ring here. Yeah, pretty disgusting. I thought it was funny. Like, he was brushing his teeth, kind of hiding his mouth, like keeping it closed while he's brushing. And then he takes the toothbrush out and kind of does a smile or whatever the hell he was doing to show that he had no teeth. Um, then yeah, spits, it was spits through his missing teeth. Just uh, disgusting. Yeah, that spit wad was disgusting for sure. So the match doesn't go very long, but in the middle of the match, Norman does a middle rope splash, but rolls out of the ring. And it looks like he was trying to elicit fans to chant lunatic or crazy or something of that nature at him. That's what they've been going for. 
trying to get the fans to do that with the reverse psychology. Don't call Norman crazy. Don't call Norman a lunatic. It's not really working. He hasn't caught on yet here. The fans aren't really chanting anything. Norman's playing it up like they are, though. He, he winds up getting back in the ring and nailing that avalanche in the corner of the old Karachi Crunch ends it in about a minute and 28 seconds. And post-match, Norman bites on Emery. He starts going crazy now. He's lost his cool. And Teddy Long, he starts feeling his pockets. He's feeling his pants pockets. He's feeling his jacket pockets. Where the hell did those keys go? And Jim Ross on commentary trying to sell it. Find those keys! And Teddy can't find the keys. And Norman's basically, he's, he's eating poor Bob Emery here. So finally, Teddy finds the keys, though. And Norman immediately calms and backs into a corner and calms down. And everything is okay in the world for now, anyway. And I don't know that Norman is the one to make this work. I like the gimmick to a degree. I don't like everything about the gimmick. I like parts of the gimmick. I like the keys controlling, you know, the, the man. I just don't know, based on those vignettes we saw, those Norman vignettes. Nah, nah, yeah. I just don't know if he's the right guy to get this over. Yeah, he's definitely, I mean, for his size, he can really move and do things that you don't really expect somebody that big to do. But the gimmick itself is just so terrible. I wonder whose idea this was. A gimmick like this, you need somebody that's invested and willing to put in the time and effort to make it work. Yeah, I, I just don't think he's into it, and that, that takes away from it. Yeah, and with the influx of talent they have right now, all of the talent coming in, you really can't afford to be picky or choosy with the gimmick they're giving you. You need to get out there and get it over whether you're into it or not. And uh, obviously this doesn't necessarily work out in the best way for him. He'd go on to turn babyface. He'll go on to become a trucker. And then he'll go on to get fired or let his contract expire because I guess Ole Anderson, by the time he took the book, he absolutely hated Norman. So he couldn't wait to see him go. And he's gone by the beginning, right before Dusty comes in in 91. But he's he's there for about a year and a half, believe it or not. Uh, uh, unbelievable. Yeah, it's crazy. Nah, nah, yeah! You got me running around my house doing that stupid shit, and it's funny, so I appreciate it. <laughs> it's promo time with the Road Warriors and Paul Ellering, and the roadies don't get mad, Steve. They get even. Well, Paulie Danielsley and a Samoan, how do you feel, jumps? See, nobody messes with the Legion of Doom and gets away with it. We not only get mad, we get even. So every time you turn around, you're going to see our face right in the middle of yours, and there ain't nowhere to go. Nowhere to hide. We ain't going to rest till we kick their butt. Tell them, Hawk. You know, there's a little island. It's really kind of a hellhole. It's called Samoa. But I'll bet it's looking pretty good to the Samoans right now. After what we did to you, you want to get back in a banana boat and get right back there, I'm sure. And when we get done with you, Precious Paul has come up with a magnificent idea. Since everybody else is taking upon themselves to offer Mike Tyson a challenge, me and Animal are extending a challenge to Mike Tyson. If a football player can fight him, so can we. Tell him, Paul. You know, I've been a gambler all my life, Paulie, dangerously. And I'm not forgetting you too, Freebirth. I've been a gambler all my life, and I can tell one thing, and one thing only, and that is that desperate money never wins. And gentlemen, you're all betting like you're desperate. You're betting like you're scared of these two men, because deep down, you are scared. In your dreams, you're scared. And they got even with the SST at the Clash, cost them the chance at the World Tag Team titles. 
And Hawk says the SST want to get back in the banana boat and leave the States. And basically uh, claiming the SST are now scared of the roadies and they want to escape, get away. Hawk extends a challenge also to Mike Tyson during this promo. Really goofy promo. Hawk was all over the place, more so than usual and not in a good way. I liked Ellering's portion. Hawk was all over the place and he didn't make any sense at all on what he was trying to sell. Challenge of Mike Tyson and calling Samoa a hellhole. Wasn't really a fan of that. The banana boat, he's getting his, his gimmicks in there. Um, animals was animal. Uh, I will say animals face paint here was just awesome. That neon yellow looking color was awesome uh, as a highlight to the black. But other than that, Ellering was the best part of this whole promo. Yeah. We get highlights of Lex Luger attacking Rick Steamboat from the clash. And then we get a promo following that up with Lex Luger. Jim Ross conducts it with Lex Luger. And, and I actually recorded this soundbite and I want everybody to listen to it. Cause it's a really good promo. There's even a better one next week. We'll get to that later on. But uh, before we listen to this, I just want to preface this by saying, I want everybody to listen really closely to the beginning when Jim Ross introduces Lex Luger. There's an overdubbed voice here uh, from Jim Ross when he's talking. And it says uh, something on lines of, uh, it was out of character for Lex to do what he did to Ricky Steamboat. It just, it sticks right out at you. It's clearly not what Rick, Jim Ross said. And I kind of caught it when I heard it. And as I was recording the audio and I went back to edit, I really noticed it, but I'd already watched the video. So I really haven't went back yet to see what he really said or what the hell was said there. I don't know if he said the wrong guy's name. He wasn't thinking. Or what the hell happened there? But it's very, very noticeable when the when the promo first starts. Jim Ross announces Lex Luger and what he did to Ricky Steamboat. So take a listen to that, and uh, we'll we'll talk about the Luger promo on the other side. And I was as shocked as anybody else because it was totally out of character, in my opinion, for the total package to do what you did to Ricky Steamboat. You know, Jim Ross, the total package Lex Luger has heard a lot. As of late, I've heard about why did you do that to Ricky Steamboat. Poor little Ricky Steamboat. What Ricky Steamboat is, is a victim of circumstances. Because for a year and a half now, I've been catering to other people. I've been catering to these ingrates out here, always trying to please them and not myself. And when you hang with them, all you come up with is a handful of dirt. Well, from now on, the total package is reaching for the stars. The total package is going to become what he always should have been, and that is the premier wrestler in the world today. The greatest athlete in the world today. Because I've got the looks, I've got the physical characteristics, I've got everything it takes. I am the greatest wrestler alive on the face of this earth today. Now, Ricky Steamboat, you slid in the back door. You had what was mine. Now you say you're number one contender? Not a chance, Ricky Steamboat. I'm coming after everything the sport has to offer. Ric Flair, either you wrestle 
or you give up the belt. One or the other to the king of the hill. And that is the total package Lex Luger. You know something? It truly is better to give Jim Ross to receive because I gave Ricky Steamboat that clothesline and felt my arms sink into his Adam's apple. That felt good. And when I went and grabbed that chair and whacked him across the back of the neck and the vibrations came through my arms, that felt good. But you know, it's like a shark that just gets a little bit of scent of the blood. Because Ricky Steamboat, I am going to throw that is just a small sample of what's waiting for you. Because I'm telling you what's going to happen. I'm going to go into a feeding frenzy. Ric Flair always said he was the dirtiest player in the game. Not anymore. Because I've learned a lot in the last year and a half. And now you're looking at the dirtiest player in the game. The total package, Lex Luger. Full-on heel here now. Lex Luger after turning on Ricky Steamboat the Clash, and he's done pleasing the fans. He says Ricky Steamboat slid in the back door, came in, won the world title over Flair, just after Luger had lost his last chance against Flair at Starcade. Uh, Luger's coming after everything now. He wants the world title. He has the U.S. title. He wants the world title. And I'm not going to sit here and praise this promo too long. It was a great promo. But I'm not going to praise this too long, only because I know what's coming up next week. Uh, but I do want to get your take on this promo. Yeah, I thought he did really well. I know his heel turn gets trashed a lot from Clash 7, but if you watch syndication, watch TV, and you watch pretty much everything from the NWA at this point, and you get the the stuff that he was doing prior to the Clash and then what he get, did after the Clash. You get the full effect, yeah. Uh, to get the full range of the heel turn and things like that, Right. it's actually very well done, and I think Luger... Uh, he probably walked in the door, and when he got told he was turning heel again, he probably jumped for joy and was like, finally. He, he's uh, opening up something that we never really seen from Lex Luger at this point. Um, because, I mean, he's a heel before. He's kind of riding the coattails of the horsemen, and he was never really on his own. And then when he did get on his own, he was a good guy and, and things like that. So he never really had a chance to do this at the level that he's at right now. And he's doing very, very good right now. Really good promo here by Luger. Yeah, and I think my favorite part really was probably unintentionally the best part for me was when he said it's better to give and receive. I it felt great when I gave Ricky Steamboat the clothesline to the throat. It just sound it was funny. It wasn't meant to be funny, but I I really loved it. Like I I envisioned that and it just made me laugh. It's really good stuff by yeah. Lex Luger there. As the show continues, Ranger Ross with the win over Lee Scott here. Ranger actually at one point picks Lee Scott up in a press slam. Probably the only guy that Ranger Ross can press over his head with ease as Lee Scott and good back and forth pinning combos between the two. They even do the bridge up into the backslide spot that Ric Flair loves to do. And it was really funny seeing a job guy involved in that spot, but poor Lee at one point misses a charge and basically does a suicide dive through the ropes of the floor onto absolutely nobody. And then it's back inside where he runs into a combat kick from Ranger Ross who gets the win three minutes, nine seconds, another decent squash. And I'll say it again. I just don't understand where it all goes awry with Ranger Ross. I, I don't know. I thought that he's resting a little bit more aggressive ever since the clash. And then he's even opening up his offense and doing more moves. Like you said, the gorilla press. I don't know if it was just Lee Scott, but I thought Ranger Ross looked really good here. And again, that could just be him being in the ring with Lee Scott, though. Yeah, I'm curious to where it all went sideways for him. I wonder how he was backstage because 
a lot of promoters really enjoy like those military gimmicks. We all know about Corporal Kirchner when Vince found out that he was actually a corporal. He's like, I'm going to use him. So they do appreciate those guys and use them just because you, it's an easy way to get over with the crowd. So I, I'm wondering if he had a bad attitude or what exactly the deal was with Ranger Ross because he didn't really get the shake that he deserved. We get a Steiner Brothers promo along with Missy Hyatt. And they're talking Rick Steiner versus Kevin Sullivan in a street fight at the Boston Garden. Of course, Sullivan from Boston. I don't really know what Rick was trying to imply here. He says uh, Kevin's not really from Boston. He he goes to city to city and say, says he's from every city. Um, you can't mistake that Boston accent of Kevin Sullivan, though. I don't care where where Kevin claimed to be from from time to time, the Conk Republic or Daytona Beach, which is where you know he wound up living eventually. But definitely a Bostonian <laughs> through and through is Kevin Sullivan. And Scott uh, teases Rick at this point. He says, Ricky's got a girlfriend, of course, alluding to Robin Green. And Rick says he has a date coming up. And that just makes me think of the the actual date vignette that we get later on. I don't know when that's coming, but it's got to be coming soon. And uh, the date vignette where Jim Ross is giving Rick Steiner advice on how to prepare for a date, which I just found hilarious. Uh, Scott Steiner teases Rick, but uh, Robin Green will be in the crowd. So we'll see a little bit more of that in a little, uh, here in a little bit. But um, Scott says at one point, uh, people keep asking, is Rick all there? He goes, Rick, are you all there? And Rick just kind of goes, I'm here. More <laughs> classic Rick Steiner stuff. Just great delivery. Steiner promo, I, I don't mind it. I know a lot of people trash this, and, and I, I think you're one of them that doesn't really care for the whole angle with Robin Green. Uh, Rick Steiner and Scott, I think, like you said earlier, they're brothers, so they, there's chemistry there. Obviously, they've been together their whole life, so – I feel like it just works, and it's more of a, a comedy gimmick with Rick Steiner instead of him being, you know, having the accident and the stupid shit that they were trying to pull after, uh, what was it, Chi-Town Rumble? Yeah, it, it turned for the better, I think, and Rick's funny. He's great. Tag team action with Kevin Sullivan and Mike Rotunda over Bucky Siegler and Ray Lloyd, the future Glacier Blood Runs Cold. So the Varsity Club still team, but they're not the Varsity Club. Makes total sense. Rotunda with the butterfly suplex on Glacier here. Then the uh, former Varsity Club get the win in two and a half minutes. And it's off to a Jim Cornette and Midnight Express promo, or at least that's how it begins. Cornette says he's let the Midnight Express down. Polly cost them the world tag team titles. Cornette admits he couldn't have prevented physically Terry Gordy from getting involved in the match. But had Cornette been up and, and awake, he would have been able to alert his team of Gordy's interference. And so Cornette feels like it was his fault. He cost his Midnight's the world tag team titles at the Clash. So he tells the Midnight's not to worry anymore. Cornette challenges Polly one-on-one to a match. No Midnight's involved. Basically, that's where we are with the whole Cornette and Polly feud. They're trying to move it away from the Midnight's because the Midnight's are working here with the Birds, which also brings in Dr. Death. Cornette points out that nobody trusts the Midnight Express. They were heels for a very long time. Nobody also trusts... Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and Doc kind of joins the promo uh, somewhere around this point. And uh, the reason they don't trust Doc is he's been uh, a longtime member now of the Varsity Club. And so nobody trusts anyone on the Cornette team here. So Doc basically has aligned himself with Cornette and the Midnights to feud with all three Freebirds, which makes sense. And my only issue here is uh, Doc sort of just looks past Kevin Sullivan. I'm buying Doc against Gordy. Uh, but maybe for the first time in his career and in no fault of his own, I'm not feeling Cornette. His promos make sense. But I guess it's just the situation the Midnight Express are in as faces against the unover Freebirds. We're used to the Midnights as heels and certainly used to quality matches from the Midnights and their opponents. 
which, as we saw at the Clash, it's going to be a very tough task to get out of Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not feeling either Paul Lee or Jim Cornette right now. Both of these guys, it seems like since they're not working each other, I mean, they are, but their teams aren't. I feel like they're, they don't know what to do. They've been stuck together for quite a long time. It's hard. It seems like it's been tough for them to transition into other feuds and kind of get away from each other. It's something they can't get away from, and I, it, it's showing in their promos and things like that. Yeah, I don't know what it is. It's something's off right here, and I don't. I, I can't really. It's hard to explain, but I don't. I don't get it. I, it's not like it's terrible. It's just I've heard better and expect better, but. Yeah, and I'm all for Doc against Gordy instead of Doc against Sullivan. But how do you feel about Doc kind of just overlooking Sullivan? I mean, Doc had been part of the Varsity Club, which was Kevin Sullivan's thing. And then Kevin Sullivan's supposedly the guy that paid off Terry Gordy to take Doc out in Japan. So, I mean, even though I'm all about Doc versus Gordy instead of Sullivan being plugged in here, how do you feel about Doc just kind of overlooking Sullivan as if he's not even worth dealing with in this whole scenario? I just I feel like we need a one-off there or something. I don't understand that at all. I, I don't like it. I'd rather you got to finish things off. So maybe if they booked it, you know, him saying, you know, I'm going to get through Gordy because he's the one who did the attack on me and then Sullivan, I'm coming for you because you paid him to do it. I'd be okay with that. But they just kind of, like you said, they just, he just completely ignored it, doesn't care, and is basically just turning the other cheek to the fact that Sullivan's the one who paid him off to do it. So that's like, a, like you said in our Halloween Havoc rundown. <laughs> Swiss cheese booking right there. There's a lot of holes here. Yeah. We move into the next segment. It's Sting taking on Big Al Green. And so here Al Green is without the bounty hunter mask, and he's basically wearing the same exact gear. So that's uh, living proof that the bounty hunter, the current bounty hunter in the NWA, is Al Green. He's not really hiding it very well. Stinger Splash and Scorpion Deathlock ends this match in only 1 minute 47 seconds. Maybe Al needs to go back to wearing the mask. The matches seem to go a little longer when he's the bounty hunter. Terry Funk tries to run in here, but he retreats immediately because Sting's ready for him. So Funk grabs a chair from ringside, tosses it in at Sting. Uh, this shit was hot, and it sucks that there was no real payoff between Sting and, and Terry Funk on a pay-per-view or on a clash. I know they're working some bash matches, but uh, we don't really get to see a payoff between the two one-on-one after all the hot angles we've seen on, on recent weeks of TV. So I'm kind of bummed about that, and they, it continues here. Yeah, I agree. Sting and Funk would have been awesome, especially when I get it. He, he went, what, against Steamboat? And I get that because they wanted to didn't have a top 10 match. But Sting's on there, too. But I feel like as a stopgap to wait to get to Flair, I think these guys having a 10- to 12-minute match on Saturday night that maybe went to a double DQ or a double count. I've been okay with that in that situation. Um, but it would have been fun as hell for the 10, 12 minutes that they got on TV. And it sucks we never got it. Yeah, that would have been payoff enough for me just seeing these guys actually tangle in, in a ring versus just a, a few brawls on the floor. Just uh, Even if we don't get a finish, like you said, that would have been good enough because the real feud here, I guess, at the end of the day is Funk and Flair. So Sting is just kind of a, a stepping stone to that, so to speak, not to disrespect Sting at all, because I think the, this match, I'm as equally as interested in as I am with the Flair match. So and maybe even more so just based on some of the, the wild brawls we've been seeing between the two. But yeah, I just, uh, I feel like I want more. And I know that we end up seeing them in tag matches and things like that down the road, but hopefully maybe somewhere in there, there's a hidden gem that I just, I don't know of at this point. And we do wind up seeing Funk and, and Sting at some point. So I, I'm not really sure, but we'll see if that happens or not down the line. We move on to a promo by the World Tag Team Champion, Fabulous Freebirds. And I'll save you guys from listening to any sound bites. I didn't grab one anyway. Uh, but this is all about them just kind of, 
boasting about being the new world tag team champions thanks to Terry Gordy. Gordy addresses Dr. Death. The Birds ad- address their feud with the Midnight Express, and that's pretty much it. It's cut-and-paste stuff from other Freebird promos. And our main event this week, uh, kind of a rematch from Clash of the Champions, and this time it's, I don't know if it's an air conditioning, but it's probably not 120 degrees in here. It's Terry Gordy taking on Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and these guys started off like beasts at the Clash, but they, they ran out of wind pretty fast. They were They were really huffing and puffing from the heat <laughs> in the building. Yeah. There in Fort Bragg. And so we get a rematch here, and I'm kind of happy about that. Doc rushes the ring. He jumped, uh, Gordy jumps out to escape, but Doc follows him right outside. And the brawl just starts off right away. And I, was, I thought that was great. And uh, I wrote down here in my notes that this is a slobber knocker. This is definitely what Jim Ross would call a slobber knocker. I'm glad they gave these guys this rematch from the Clash. Uh, great bumps by Gordy, as usual. I don't even know why I have to say that. Dr. Death counters a pile driver with a backdrop. Doc charges with a tackle, but Gordy plows him over with the clothesline instead, just beating the living shit out of each other. Fun stuff. Everything looks so solid between these two. Doc comes back, uh, nails Gordy with the tackle, and it was a great bump by Gordy. Gordy takes a back bump and lets his legs kind of roll back over the top of his head to where he's laying on his back, but his toes are over top of his head touching the mat as well. And you just couldn't believe somebody like Terry Gordy could could lay there stretched out like that, but it was hilarious and a fun bump by Terry Gordy there. Michael Hayes winds up distracting Nick Patrick. Jimmy Garvin trips up Dr. Death and as Doc's trying to go for the Oklahoma Stampede, and that leads to Gordy basically turning it into an inside cradle and getting the pin on Dr. Death in seven minutes. You didn't see Doc do a lot of jobs, one, two, three jobs, and uh, he does it here on TV, and the Freebirds pick up the win. Uh, This brings out Jim Cornette, who cannot mind his own business. Didn't he just tell the Midnight Express he's going to stay out of other people's shit? And here he is out here in Dr. Death's shit, basically trying to get the referee to overturn the decision. He's letting them know that the birds interfered. And that's when the birds drag Cornette into the ring, which in turn leads to the midnight express coming out to save their manager. Something Jim Cornette just promised them would never have to happen again. And uh, this leads into all sorts of guys running out. So we got the birds, the midnights, we've got the New Zealand militia coming down dynamic dudes down there. At this point, I'm like, what the hell is going on? Are are they incorporating? And I knew this wasn't on the pay-per-view, but I just was wondering, are they incorporating the dudes and the militia into some of these maybe house show war games or something? I'm not sure if they even did any war games on the house show tour, but I was like scared for a minute. Like what the hell? Why are the New Zealand militia being lumped in with the birds and the midnights? And then I find out as more guys start running down, we see Norman come down the Steiners. I think Sullivan and Rotunda run down and Jim Ross starts hyping the upcoming triple chance battle Royals leading to the, the finals at the bash. And it all made sense. Then we get that wild brawl, as the show goes off the air. And it just kind of reminded me of many of the years where the events would do the same thing for the Royal Rumble, the final Raw going in. Somehow the show would end many, many, many times with, you know, just 20 guys in the ring brawling at the end of the show. Yeah, this is an awesome ending to the show. Some of the names that came out, doesn't matter. They're going to be in the Battle Royal. So it's just a, it's a cool visual when you have, you know, the dudes teed off with the militia. The Steiners were going after Sullivan and I think Rotunda. Norman was out there beating up everybody. Freebirds and those guys are going at each other. So you had a bunch of little feuds. You're kind of what your whole show is based off of, and they're all in the ring at the same time, just beating the hell out of each other. And that's what you get in a battle royal. So it didn't work, obviously, because it didn't draw the house. But it, as a fan, seeing that on TV, I'd be interested in seeing these guys go at it in a battle royal. I think it'd be a lot of fun. It was a very entertaining show. Yeah, and the show's not even over yet. They go into commercial break with this brawl going on, and they actually come back out of the commercial break, 
as they're concluding the show and the brawl is still going on, which was an extra nice added touch. They're not in the ring anymore. They're on the floor brawling, but it's just uh, alleged to, it's more hype for the battle Royal and job well done here as the show goes off the air. And we move on to the next night. It's June 18th and the NWA main event hosted now uh, for the final time by Lance Russell and Paulie dangerously, because we're going to see a switch in that next week. Unfortunately, as Lance Russell gets uh, removed. But uh, for this week, Lance Russell's still there, and we don't have footage for this show, but the results are out there, and the timestamps for the results are out there. Makes me wonder if these matches actually exist maybe somewhere. So if anybody has this, please share. We'd love to review it and and go over it and just uh, fill another gap in the uh, history of the business here of of missing uh, footage. Uh, The show goes like this. It's Butch Reed over, uh, and here Butch Reed's actually managed by Teddy Long, believe it or not. And he gets a win over the future Glacier, Ray Lloyd, with the diving shoulder block in 5 minutes and 16 seconds. It's Rotunda and Sullivan over Ranger Ross and Randy Rose in 10 minutes and 50 seconds, with uh, Rotunda getting the pin over Randy Rose with the butterfly suplex after Sullivan hit Rose with a knee in the back. I almost thought I was going to say a knee to the head because that poor Randy Rose. And then in the main event of the main event, it was Bill Irwin wrestling Ricky Santana. They've been having that feud on the syndicated programs. Bill Irwin wrestles Ricky Santana to a uh, basically a 15-minute time limit draw to conclude the show. Don't know that I want to see these two in a 15-minute match, especially one that ends in a draw. I'd like to see a payoff, but I, I still hope we do wind up seeing another match between these two because I would like to see some kind of a payoff. Even though it is Ricky Santana and Bill Irwin, you still get invested in the feud because it is something you have to watch, and hopefully we do get to see the kind of the payoff and see what they do with it. I want to give a big shout out to the one and only Retro Network. That's the Retro Network. You can find their site over at theretronetwork.com. Join Jason, Mickey, and the crew as they do a deep dive into eras gone by and especially the 80s and 90s. Two decades I'm happy to admit I grew up in. The Retro Network offers a little bit of everything for everyone who's looking to relive those youthful memories, grab hold of that nostalgic feeling, or for you youngins out there who want to see what the fuss was all about. We're talking podcasts, music playlists, articles covering everything from movie reviews to toys to cartoons and everything in between. They even have great holiday theme posts going on. There's great videos featuring segments like the Wax Pack Flashback where they unseal decades old trading cards. I find myself having fun every time I visit and there's always something new for you to enjoy every day you pop on there. You can follow the Retro Network on Twitter at TRN Social, and their website again is theretronetwork.com. Please come relive your childhood with Jason, Mickey, and the crew at theretronetwork.com. We've got to thank our loyal fan base of listeners of The Grenade as you guys continue to listen, download, and subscribe to the show. We can't thank you guys enough, and please continue to spread the word and retweet all the posts from our Twitter account to help us grow. Of course, all of our shows are available on WrestleCopia.com, but you can also find The Grenade wherever you listen to your streaming podcasts of pleasure. We're available on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Google Pod, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Podbean, you name it, and we're probably there. And a reminder that you too can win free prizes as listeners of The Grenade as part of our continuous free giveaway offers. All you have to do is follow us on Twitter at Rasslin Grenade. That's follow us on Twitter at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. It's that simple. Be a follower of the Grenade and you're automatically entered into each and every free gift giveaway. 
and spread the word about the free prize giveaway and the show in general because the more subscribers and followers we have, the more gifts we can give away, the more shows we can produce. And one more time, I just want to thank our loyal fan base, all of our listeners of the Wrestling Memory Grenade. We hope to hear from you in the future. And that takes us into the weekend of June 23rd. And yes, I said the 23rd, not the 24th, because now we have the debut, the Friday night debut of the Power Hour. And this episode, and it's the debut episode too, this episode starts at 10.20 p.m. Eastern. What an odd time. I'm assuming maybe there was a Braves game prior to this. Makes sense in that sense, but I don't know, man. Debuting a show at such a random time, pretty ballsy by the Turner Network. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't even feel like it got any hype or anything on Saturday night or any of the syndicated stuff that we watched last week. Right, yeah, there was really no mention. You just thumb through the channels on Friday night and oh wrestling's on let's stop and watch I mean that's what they're hoping for I guess because they didn't promote this did George Scott come back it makes you wonder that's for sure and uh, this show's actually got a kind of a different format as well it's not just wrestling I think there's three matches on this show but there's also uh, the debut of Funk's Grill which is going to be a new talk show segment basically replacing the danger zone we're going to see the return of Gordon Soley with his wrestling news network so it's a little bit of everything here almost like a magazine style show if you will and show kicks off and it and they're laying in the heavy art, uh, artillery right away it's sst taking on the road warriors here in the opening match and their managers are out there we got two paulies out there paulie dangerously and paul ellering and the roadies attack and clear the ring but eventually sst are able to isolate animal and take over on the match after he gets tripped up by paulie on the outside as the match goes on animal and fatu wind up colliding with one another we get a hot tag to road warrior hawk Hawk comes in, nails the big flying shoulder block, neck breaker, covers Fatu, but Samu breaks the count. We wind up with all four guys in the ring. It breaks down, and the Freebirds hit the ring and cause a disqualification here in three minutes and 15 seconds. The roadies will get the win by disqualification thanks to the Freebirds, and uh, things were just getting going here. This is the first time we've seen the Road Warriors and the SST actually get in a ring and perform wrestling moves. And not that I'm complaining. Usually, though, these two wind up just beating the living hell out of each other all over the arena. Here we actually got to see these guys actually try to do what resembled a wrestling match. Yeah, it's a nice change of pace compared to what they've been doing. This feud's really awesome. These guys, like like I mentioned just a little bit ago, these guys love to just beat the hell out of each other, and it seems like they have a good time doing it. So, uh, very entertaining three minutes. I want to see more. And at this point, I'm having flashbacks to the Islanders kidnapping Matilda the Bulldog because the SST kidnapped Paul Ellering and drag him over to the announcer's stage. And at this point, they beat down on Ellering a little bit, they rough him up, and they hold him up for Paul E., who clocks him over the head with the phone, and they lay Ellering out, and they bust a pineapple over his face, too, just for good measure, and they cover him in their Samoan uh, skirt gimmick, for lack of a better term. Not really sure what that's called, but they lay one of their skirt things over top of him, lay him to rest, bury him, basically. And it shows the uh, vulnerability of Paul Ellering as the manager, as the Road Warriors run up to the stage finally after they fight off the birds, and they, they look really pissed off that their manager's been uh, manhandled like this. This is a good way to enhance it for me. The SST, it's kind of been a brawl. They needed a team gets the upper hand any in any shape or form, and this is the first time one of the guys, one of the teams actually did get the upper hand on each other, so... It's starting to sizzle a little bit here, and uh, it's definitely getting better. Yeah, and I love it because the SST and the Road Warriors, they keep getting at each other. They want matches. They're getting matches on TV, but they hate each other so much that 
this three minute match was the closest thing resembling a real match. And it was, it was quick, but it was fun. And again, we got another angle to kind of further everything here. It wasn't just, um, and I'm not complaining again, like I said, two teams beating the shit out of each other, which has been fun. Now we've got another uh, layer to the feud. They've beat down Paul Ellering. They've taken advantage of Paul Ellering. We kind of saw the varsity club do that way back in like January or February during the roadies and varsity club feud. And that kind of escalated things there. Only this is far worse. They've really laid Paul Ellering out here. He looks vulnerable. I think at some point in another episode, they mentioned that he was even possibly out of action, out of commission. Maybe he went to the hospital. I don't really know. I hope we get a blow off in the middle at some point. I know we see them in the war games match. Spoiler alert for the great American bash. But I hope we get a, a blow off in the ring as well. Long before, you know, Starcade or that, that far down the line and, and matches and whatnot. I'd like to see, you know, in the peak of this feud here in the summer, I hope we get a really good two-on-two. Yeah, I, I would too. That's what I want to see. That's what I'm looking forward to. We know you guys can brawl and you, you really haven't had a match match. So let's see what you can do when you're forced to have a match. And uh, that's what I'm interested in seeing. Right. And it's the debut of Gordon Soley's Wrestling News Network, WNN, and it's the basically the debut or the return, really, of Gordon Soley to the NWA. His first appearance on TBS in, in quite a few years. Joe Petticino's voice does the announcing. He introduces Gordon Soley here, and the only problem I had with this entire segment was they didn't really sell it as such a big deal. It was just like, it's Gordon Soley's WNN. It wasn't like, it was if, as if we had known about it for years. It was nothing new, nothing special. It was just... No fanfare for the return of the legendary Gordon Soley. Yeah, they didn't do much for him. It was just, here you go, enjoy. And kind of that was it. So it definitely was weird. You, you'd expect somebody of the caliber of Gordon Soley getting a pretty hyped up return. So a little surprising. Yeah, it was kind of unceremonious to say the least. They don't really play it up. And it was a fun news segment, though. Uh, Soley talks Lex turning on Steamboat. Flares up coming announcement on July 1st here. Uh, Teddy Long signing the skyscrapers. This is where the continuity finally makes sense. We had wondered how the hell they were going to take the skyscrapers from Gary Hart and give them to Teddy Long if they were even going to mention it because we never actually see Gary Hart with the skyscrapers. This is where it's mentioned. Leave it to Gordon Soley to, to uh, play continuity police. As he announces, Teddy Long has signed the skyscrapers over from Gary Hart, who never physically managed the skyscrapers. So easily the best kayfabe money Gary Hart ever made uh, for doing absolutely nothing whatsoever. Yeah, definitely. He just had to sell some talent that he never even managed. He didn't have to do anything for it. So living the dream. Yeah, and this was kind of a cool touch here. He kind of plays off that uh, pro wrestling this week deal. Uh, as he mentions storylines going on or, or things going on in other wrestling promotions. He's actually acknowledging promotions outside of the NWA. And he starts off with Hulk Hogan and no holds barred the movie. Yeah, I don't know. He says it's in the top 10 or something like that at the theater. Um, but he, it was just shocking to hear him mention something WWF related and he'll continue to do that. I'm not sure how long this goes on, but he does do this for at least a few weeks that I know of him talks about Eric Embry down in Dallas. Uh, also, he talks about Dustin Rhodes winning the Florida title over Al Perez. So that's what Al Perez is doing now. He refused to job to guys like Ric Flair, but he'll go to Florida and job for a teenage Dustin Rhodes. <laughs> I just, I, I, yeah, I just wonder how long this format's going to last with Gordon coming out here and talking about other wrestling promotions. But I think my favorite part of this entire segment was Gordon Soley pointing out Lex Luger and his heel turn. And, and Gordon made it sound almost like he had a personal agenda not in a bad way, just like he knew the real Lex Luger. He talked about Luger's disciplinary problems, being 
ousted from the University of Miami for his bad behavior. He says, this is Lex's true colors. He didn't say like he was, he didn't say like he was shocked. He said it like, there you go. Like now there's proof. I already knew this. This is what I knew all along. Now everyone can see this is Lex Luger's true colors. And Gordon doesn't sound shocked or, or anything like that based on, you know, his time calling Lex in Florida. It's like he sold it like he knew the real Lex Luger. And now everyone else does. Everyone else knows the, Lex, the real Lex Luger. Yeah, I think this is this is on the same level as what Lance Russell has been doing for Terry Funk. Uh, I think Lance Russell and Terry Funk really play off of each other really well during all the stuff that they do. And even when Funk's in the ring doing things, Lance Russell gets animated with him. So Gordon Sully definitely did a great job of emphasizing the heel tendencies that Lex Luger has always had that he's finally bringing to the forefront again. And I'm not going to go off on a, a five-hour tangent on what's wrong with the business today, but it, it certainly uh, can. You can say it starts with the announcing, <laughs> to some degree, and yeah, the, uh, the brainwashing uh, Vince McMahon announcing we have going on today. Imagine if we had announcers like this who were actually invested and treated the product as a real product instead of selling whatever the hell's trending or whatever's coming up on paper. So great job by Gordon Sully here getting over that Lex Luger stuff. I really bought into it. I really believed it. Made you almost think. That Gordon just, you know, he loathed Lex Luger. And Gordon didn't really do that. Even with the heels, you know, way back when he was announcer in Georgia and Florida, he didn't really pick sides too often. So uh, I just, I, I like that here. I really enjoyed that part. We go to another promo. It's Jim Ross with Ric Flair. And I don't know if I just dwelled on this more than anybody else, but they kept promoting this upcoming interview with Ric Flair and, and Jim Ross as being poolside. They go so far as to, I think Jim Cornetta, you might have the notes, Jim Cornette makes some kind of a comment about Jim Ross wearing uh, trunks or something of that nature, or I hope you're not wearing Speedos. Or how did he, did he, do you have the notes on that? Uh, yeah, he says something along the lines of, I uh, hope you're not wearing your Speedo because that will get everybody to change the channel real quick. And uh, Ross is like, no, I don't have my Speedos on. So they clearly filmed this before they filmed the promo because they sell it like they're going to go to poolside. But what we wind up with is Ric Flair in a suit. And Jim Ross, and I think he's a suit or something along those lines. And they're just standing in front of a bunch of trees. We never see a pool. We never see a pool side. We never see anything resembling or alluding to that they're anywhere near a swimming pool. And again, Ric Flair's in a suit. While Jim Cornette's wondering if Jim Ross is wearing, you know, Speedos. So it just really threw me off. Like, I really paid, maybe I harped on it too much, but just bad production for MMWA here for me. But the promo itself. It's Ric Flair. He's at a real crossroads. He refuses to wrestle at anything less than 100%. The title deserves to be worn by a man competing at 100%. But he also refuses to give Terry Funk the satisfaction of, of beating Ric Flair if, if Flair's not at 100%. Jim Ross brings up Lex Luger. Flair says everybody wants to be the world champion. If you don't want to be the world champion, you don't belong in the sport. Makes complete sense to me. He's surprised at the change in Luger but he doesn't underestimate Lex Luger. He says uh, Luger has Steamboat's attention now, so Flair doesn't seem really concerned about Luger or Steamboat in the near future. It's more about funk, but we still don't even know if Flair's coming back, and he'll address that supposedly live, I- I'm assuming on the TBS show, which makes it's that's another story we'll get to, uh, but on July 1st, uh, and we'll get to that on the next episode, but Flair then thanks everyone for their support. He'll announce his future on July 1st as part of the, the weekend show's but yeah, so basically this is the last build for the big press conference to find out if Ric Flair is retiring or if he's coming back. Tell me a lie and say that you won't go, Ric Flair. Yeah, this is a really good promo. Ric Flair, like, 
in his own way, he doesn't put himself over. He's putting that belt over by saying things like it doesn't deserve to be defended unless the champion's 100% because that's what it deserves. And it really, really puts emphasis on that title and makes it mean, makes it worth everything that people go through to get it. I, I know Flair likes to put himself over as a million-dollar man, but it's always because of the title. It's not because of anything else. And I, that's one thing that he's probably the best at is putting the title over because if he, he lives with, for it. And if he doesn't have it, it takes everything that he lives for away from him. So just a really, really solid promo here to make that belt feel like even more prestigious than it is. This show continues, and we get World Tag Team Champions, the Freebirds out there. They have Terry Gordy in their corner taking on the oddball team of Ranger Ross and Gator Scott Hall. And I'm not really sure what happened to the Gator part of Scott Hall here. I don't know, really understand what the gimmick is. He's just out here in regular gear. He's more like Jimmy Powers' Scott Hall here as he's just excited and throwing his hands around wildly and pumping it up with a big, giant, goofy smile and doing moves that a guy his size has no business doing, hip tosses, drop kicks. Just, uh... <laughs> Lame, generic baby face Scott Hall is what this is. And the match goes something like this. Scott Hall bumps Michael Hayes out of the ring. Ranger Ross bumps Michael Hayes out of the ring. Ranger Ross and Hayes crisscross do a comedy spot where Ranger Ross stops and Hayes keeps doing the crisscross on his own. That pisses Hayes off. So what just happens? He leaves the ring again for a third time. And the birds are outside the ring as much as they are inside the ring at this point. They threaten to leave, and I, I could only wish... That had happened at this point, but no, they do come back. And Ranger Ross looked really good here, hit some drop kicks on the birds, and what happens? The birds leave the ring for a fourth time in this match. And finally, Terry Gordy distracts, and Ranger Ross comes off the ropes. Michael Hayes pulls the rope down, and Ranger takes a bump to the floor. And in between all the stalling, the faces dominated the first seven minutes of this match. This team that had just been lumped together, thrown together uh, out of nowhere, they just beat the World Tag Team Champions up for about seven minutes straight. Thanks to Terry Gordy, they wind up getting heat here on Ranger Ross for a couple minutes. Michael Hayes goes for his bulldog, but Ranger winds up picking him up in the air and throwing him across the ring. It's hot tag time to big old Gator Scott Hall, and here comes the Gator. He's doing the silly babyface stuff I was talking about, the silly celebrating, the over-the-top babyface celebrating. like the just, I call it the Jimmy Powers cell. Tommy Young gets in the corner. He's trying to separate the illegal men, uh, Michael Hayes and Ranger Ross. Meanwhile, Scott Hall has the O'Connor roll on Jimmy Garvin. Terry Gordy sneaks in. Wham! DDT on Hall right on the top of his head. Great bump by Hall. They used a similar spot at Clash of the Champions with Garvin and Hayes, the birds and uh, dudes match. Jimmy Garvin covers Scott Hall here. Match goes 10 minutes, 44 seconds. Not a bad match in between the stalling. I was impressed with how Ranger held his own here in this match with the birds. But uh, lots of stalling, and odd that the birds chose this match to do all of the selling in. I guess they thought it wouldn't hurt them since they knew for sure they were going to go over in the end. Yeah, this was boring and terrible. Uh, Ranger Ross did his part. I mean, he did really well. But all the stalling just drove me nuts. And to be honest with you, man, I just skimmed through the stalling. It, it felt like it took the first seven minutes. It felt like 15 minutes how much stalling they actually did. It's so terrible. It's so predictable. Once you did it once, you knew it was going to just continue happening. And yeah, it got old after the second time, and they did it two other times. So just garbage. Yeah, I don't get you expect to get over when you're doing this stupid shit all the time. Yeah, and they'll get away with this for quite a while. They get away with this here in '89. They'll get away with it in '90. They do have some decent matches with the Southern Boys, but outside of that, they get away with this type of stuff quite a bit. Uh, in '91. Uh, up until Bill Watts gets back. It's uh, 
It's a bit of a different story then. And then, you know, for about six months, they're forced to actually wrestle, maybe not even six months. And at that point, uh, very curious how they decide they're going to retire from the ring <laughs> because they actually have to get in there and put on uh, an actual match uh, on a weekly basis. And so uh, not too long after that, we see that they call it quits there in the tail end of the summer of 1992 as full-time wrestlers. If Bill Watts did anything good in 92, he chased the Freebirds out of the ring anyway. Thank you, Bill Watts. Jesus. And uh, <laughs> it's Funk's Grill, the debut of Funk's Grill. And uh, he's got as his first guest, Missy Hyatt. Uh, they introduced Funk's Grill here, and I actually recorded the whole entire episode, but it's really nothing, and it's really, without seeing it, it's extra nothing. So I'm just going to play the uh, intro to Funk's Grill, and then we'll cut back and we'll kind of talk about what was said here. The Power Hour is proud to present the most unpredictable place in town. Let's go to Funk Grill. Are you people ready for something new? Are you tired of old Orca Winfrey and her afternoon shows? Well, now we have something special for you in prime time. So basically, this is Terry Funk's talk show. There's a neon light that says Funk's Grill behind him, which was kind of cool. It's a lot better than the Danger Zone backdrop anyway which looked like it had been put together with a, with a basically a white piece of paper and some paint. Uh, <laughs> here, Terry Funk chooses Missy Hyatt as his first guest, basically because she's beautiful. He brings Missy out, and he asks Missy who would hypothetically win between a match and, and involving Flair and Funk. She chooses Flair. So at this point, Terry Funk talks about being a basically a movie star on the silver screen, as he calls it. He asks Missy, he kind of alludes that maybe he can get Missy Hyatt a job in Hollywood. And uh, asks her if she can act. Could she say that she thinks Terry Funk could beat Ric Flair? So Missy obliges. She says that Terry Funk would beat Ric Flair. And then he, he kind of gets in and puts his arm around her. And he starts not really groping her or fondling her, but he's getting close. And he asks Missy if she wants to try a, like a kissing scene. And Missy kind of shies away from that, which in any other world, I'm not buying with Missy Hyatt. But here on TV, sure, I'll go for it. Missy Hyatt, she, she's not kissing Terry Funk here. And uh, it's kind of a casting couch style routine here. I don't know if this is going to get over in 2020 uh, <laughs> with Terry Funk making Definitely the moves not. on <laughs> Missy Hyatt. And there's a lot of things Terry Funk's done <laughs> in his time here in 89 that wouldn't fly today. But I love him for that reason only, for that reason uh, alone. And uh, basically what happens here is as Funk gets a little too close to Missy, the Steiners pop, pop up out of nowhere and Funk just kind of plays the whole thing off and walks away. And I want to get your take on that. And then we'll talk about the weird text that scrolled onto the screen during this segment as well. I thought it was, it was okay. Uh, like you mentioned, I mean, I like the neon. It was definitely a step up from the danger zone sign, but the segment was kind of stupid. I don't know what it did for Terry Funk. Um, nothing. It did nothing for him. It's basically saying he likes women um, because that's all it was beautiful women, but just liking women nonetheless. Yeah. I don't, um, I don't really know what this does to further the, the Ric Flair feud. He's in, you know, in this serious uh, crawl to the top. Yeah, and same with Sting. Like, it does nothing for that. I know Sting's kind of been around the first family a little bit. It wasn't anything where this was needed. I think it was just maybe Terry Funk just wanted to have play a little bit of a comedy gimmick here for the night and be, just do something different than what he's been doing. And I can't really blame him for that. You can only be serious for so long. It, it didn't take anything away from him. It just didn't do anything. And I think that's what kind of surprised me. 
you have a new segment like Funk Squirrel, you probably want to do something better than this to and, establish uh, it. We'll also talk about another weird thing that went on during Funk Squirrel, where the weird captions popping up on the screen, presumably being typed up by Jim Cornette because they're they keep being signed Jim C. And it was just really weird because he was kind of it was almost like a pop up video esque thing as Cornette's kind of mocking the promo as it's going along. He's making fun of Funk or maybe not making fun of him, but just making his comments, what he's saying back to Terry Funk. And even at the point right before the Steiners show up, uh, Jim says, don't worry, Missy, the cavalry's on the way or the boys are on the way. And then the Steiners pop up. So Cornette even knows what's happening before it happens. It's almost like this is pre-recorded. I don't know, man. I don't remember ever seeing this before on Funk's Grill. So it really threw me for a loop. And I don't know what they were going for here, but I didn't really like it. And I, I just, I don't know. It was weird. Yeah, I didn't like it either. It was, it took away from it a little bit. And to be honest with you, I never really paid attention to it back before when I watched this. I, I probably started this Power Hour set three or four times that I have, and I never really paid attention. I just kind of listen to wrestling and not really watch unless the commentary does its job and gets me excited for something. I've never picked up on it until this time, so it was definitely weird. Yeah, I just played off as Jim Cornette. You know, he's the host, so he's just doing what he wants to do, that type of deal. But it was stupid. The main event of the program, it's Terry Funk taking on Ricky Santana, and boy, did Terry Funk change his clothes really quick. Straight out of his suit and right into his gear here. You, you would think they would have separated this a little bit on the show. But no, it's uh, Ricky Santana in the ring against Terry Funk. Or he's not even in the ring. Terry Funk actually winds up uh, meeting Ricky Santana in the aisle. I think he gives him a slap or something along those lines before the match gets going. I noticed Lance Russell and Paulie Dangerously are on commentary here, so I'm wondering if this was originally recorded uh, to take place on a, an episode of the main event. We get it here on the Power Hour. And Terry Funk slaps Santana, like I said, in the aisle. He actually takes out a member of the ring crew as well. Match starts, and Funk dominates early on, beats Santana down outside the ring. Ricky Santana fires up, got that Tito Santana fire like you've mentioned in the past. It's your token babyface comeback stuff. Terry Funk flips upside down in the corner and gets dumped to the floor. Santana on the offense, in and out of the ring. Funk hides behind Tommy Young, finally takes a cheap shot over top of Tommy Young. Pops Ricky Santana on the head and takes over. And this is where the match kind of changes up pace. It's uh, very, very different, but I'm not complaining. Funk just kind of goes into boxing mode. And I don't just mean throwing punches. I mean, he's laying in combos. He's in a boxing stance. This goes on for some time, and he basically knocks Santana out at one point, Santana down for a nine count. Uh, what did you think of that whole boxing phase of the match? Uh, I thought it looked great. He was kind of bouncing around on his tippy toes and just really having fun with it. It did like it. It just—it's so weird. Like the beginning of the match was its own thing, and then he switched to the boxer, and then it, it goes back to wrestling. So it's kind of like two different phases of this match, and it was pretty cool. I, I liked it. It's kind of—it was no different than like Roddy Piper just all of a sudden start boxing. I know that was a lot of Piper's offense, but it, it looks similar to that, and I thought it did. It Funk did pretty good. Yeah, I think I bought Funk's boxing routine here uh, better than Roddy's. Roddy would throw those uh, lightning-fast punches kind of all over the place wild, and Funk really made it look like he was trying to actually box Ricky Santana here. And uh, after Ricky beats the 10-count the back to his feet, uh, Ricky winds up blocking a punch. He comes back on his own, throws a series of his punches, and as good as Funk was at throwing the punches, he was even better at selling here. He's swinging wildly. He's knocked half goofy. He's spinning around in circles, swinging at the air. Great selling from Terry Funk throughout this entire segment of the match, and Finally, Ricky Santana charges Funk in the corner. Terry ducks out of the way. Ricky goes flying over the top rope to the outside. 
Funk follows him out. It's the running pile driver on the floor. Oh, but he's not done yet. This was awesome. I was waiting for the payoff here. Terry Funk rips the, the safety mat up. He's going to pile drive Ricky Santana on the concrete, and I was buying it. Uh, unfortunately, Tommy Young goes out there, and he grabs Terry Funk two hands full of hair, and Tommy Young's into that kinky stuff, I'm sure, grabbing a man by the hair with both his hands like that, but not here in a wrestling match, Tommy. And he grabs Terry Funk by the hair, and he just yanks him off of Ricky Santana by his hair and pulls Terry. And Terry Funk thinks about clocking Tommy Young, but he decides against it, rolls Ricky Santana in the ring, makes the cover. Terry Funk over Ricky Santana, 7 minutes, 51 seconds. And this is a perfect way to use Ricky Santana, a very good match for TV. Yeah, absolutely. He got his offense in. He, he gets that hot reaction, kind of like a Tito. I don't want to lump them two together just because of the similarities, but they do wrestle a lot alike. It's an easy comparison. But yeah, and Funk just did really good here. Like I said, he switched up the match midway through, and then he went into the crazy Terry at the end, was about to dump him on the concrete and stuff like that. All in all, it was just a really, really good match for TV. And the action continues after the match because Funk continues to beat on Ricky Santana. And Tommy Young again starts shoving at Terry Funk. And now the match is over, so Tommy Young pays dearly. Funk with one big wild shot to the side of Tommy Young. And Tommy Young takes this uh, tremendous bump. He does kind of a 180 spin and then falls over like a tree on his face. And he's just out cold, Tommy Young. Great job by Young there. And uh, here comes uh, Jobbers. It's the job squad to the rescue for Ricky Santana. Terry Funk tosses Fred Avery, big Fred Avery, out the other side. Pile driver on Lee Scott. Pile driver on another job guy. Funk beats on Santana. Beats him all the way up the aisle to the back. They get to the, the doorway to the locker room. And here come the Steiner brothers out. And they back Funk down. They stop him from doing any more damage to Ricky Santana. And Funk backs up all the way to the ring, enters the ring. The Steiners follow him in, and Funk leaves out the other side, and there's no more confrontation between the Steiners and Funk. This kind of played off the Missy segment there on Funk's Grill, but other than that, I really don't know what issues Funk has had with the Steiners, and it's all over this power hour, though. Yeah, I don't know what the issue is there either. Maybe it's just one of those uh, storylines that they did on TV with him just messing with Missy, and it pissed him off. So that's cool with me. It made sense. It flowed. The story was there, and uh, it's not that Swiss cheese that we talked about earlier. Solid stuff. And in a blink-and-you'll-miss-it moment, at the top of the show, Jim Cornette, who hosted the show with Jim Ross, I apologize for not even mentioning that. I know you briefly uh, mentioned that. I totally forgot. Uh, This is another Jim Ross show. Um, At the top of the show, Jim Cornette announced that before the show was over, they were going to announce the Wrestler of the Week. And so far, we hadn't heard that. As they close the show with 30 seconds left in the program, Jim Cornette announces that the wrestler of the week is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Again, he does this with about 30 seconds left in the show. Not only do we not get any footage of Ricky Steamboat or a promo from Ricky Steamboat, we don't get so much as a picture of Ricky Steamboat or even his name uh, on a Chiron on the television screen. If you didn't hear the last 30 seconds, if you tuned out, you had no idea this even happened. It was the most worthless segment. Uh, I'll be honest with you. When I was reviewing this show, I kind of shut it off and like, okay, this show's over. And I didn't even, I was going to mention to you, I was like, do they even do rest of the week this week? Because I didn't see it. And now that you told me it was the last 30 seconds, that explains why I didn't see it. Because I shut it off before then. I'll just spoil it a little bit. I did watch ahead a little bit, and the next week they do show like a picture of the guy who wins rest of the week. So I, I would certainly hope so, <laughs> at the very least. I mean, uh, this felt like you get to know, poor you get production. To see who it is? <laughs> yeah. All in all, though, I thought the Power Hour was a home run. 
Um, oh yeah, you got Definitely. three, Different three format. solid matches. Mm-hmm. Some of these shows are kind of hard to get to when they go slow, but this one just flew by and really, really great stuff like Funk's Grill, WNN, and then the matches themselves were just awesome. So yeah. all, I was all digging, really good stuff. I was digging the format. I just hope they find something better for Funk's Grill moving forward. That felt like a very lackluster debut episode of Funk's Grill. It almost felt like the Wrestler of the Week segment, just kind of, all right, well, Missy's standing over here, so let's let's figure something out real quick. Just really nothing to it. Not that I'm complaining about, you know, Missy on my TV screen. No, absolutely not. <laughs> we move on to Saturday in NWA Pro for June 24th. They're from Macon, Georgia. Hosts are Lance Russell and Bob Cottle, so they haven't broke that do up yet, so I'm not completely pissed at the uh, bookers just yet. And we kick things off with the Dynamic Dudes taking on Keith Steinborn and Trent Knight. Trent Knight still not selling that burn burn face. Uh, we get Frisbees out here as the dudes whipping Frisbees into the crowd. And uh, Shane with the slingshot splash at one point on Trent Knight. And uh, Johnny Ace also nails the Ace Cutter here. It's cool to see the Diamond Cutter back in 1989. And the wipeout on Steinborn ends this thing in only a minute and 50 seconds. Big quick win there for the Dynamic Dudes. And it's off to Sid Vicious in his second match in the NWAs. He takes on poor Mark Smith. And I think moving forward, every time Sid Vicious wrestles someone, their nickname is going to be poor. So it's uh, poor Mark Smith here. And I'm getting uh, flashbacks of uh, Dwayne Bruce already as this match starts. Luckily for Mark Smith, he doesn't take the death drop to the floor. He does take the power bomb and the leg drop. Sid picks up another win in a minute and 36 seconds. Yeah, not a lot going on there. I'm sure Mark Smith would Just disagree happy. with you. <laughs> Uh, I'm just happy Sid's on my TV, man, especially yeah. with these jobbers. <laughs> Pro Bowl time from Kevin Sullivan. He and Mike Rotunda will be taking on the Steiners later today, and, and we continue that on the syndication where we see the heel promo in the middle of the show hyping up the main event for later in the show. So good job there. It's another quick uh, generic promo, I guess you could call it, but it's just those little things that really help make the uh, the, the main event on these TV shows mean a little more. I agree. It's definitely, it's like, I know from reading the Observer that they had a lot of issues with syndication and you can see the effort and the the changes that are being made and implemented to try to fix that. So um, A for effort, because they really are trying different things to improve the product. We move on with more action. It's Ranger Ross taking on Fred Avery and big Fred Avery tries to jump the Ranger to start the match, but he fails. Avery flings Ranger Ross outside, but uh, Ross winds up landing on his feet. Comes back in the ring, and combat kick ends it in a minute and 36 seconds. Ranger Ross with another quick win here. And that'll take us into a match featuring the great Muda against Bucky Siegler. And uh, this is, I think, where they do announce what I already mentioned earlier, the Bash Tour matches between Muda and Gilbert with the coin flip. Kind of like a precursor to spin the wheel, make the deal. You're not spinning a wheel. There's not 10 to 12 types of matches. It's just a coin flip, but... Dragon Shire Coal Miner's Glove says the announcers here as Muda beats Bucky Siegler pretty easily with a German suplex in two minutes and 24 seconds. And it seems like over the last few weeks, Muda's kind of moved away from the moonsault for a little bit. Yeah, I'm not sure what's going on there. I don't know if there's an injury or what, but Muda, man, he had like five or six different ways to end a match and all the, of them were... At the very least. <laughs> all of them were believable. So, and the other cool thing too is when he doesn't do it for a few weeks, you miss it and you want to see it. So when he does do it again, it, it's, it means more. It's like, oh, yeah, cool, we get the moonsault this week. He's, it's smart, definitely is smart to not overdo it. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty cool to kind of – you never know what you're going to get with the Great Muda. 
Sometimes they'll just come out there and wrestle you. Sometimes it's the martial arts. Sometimes it's all the wild moves. So, uh, and none of it disappoints. You never know what you're going to get with the Great Muda, and that's that's a pretty cool thing that this guy has that much in his arsenal that, that he can have you know five different matches with you, <laughs> and it never gets old. It's so true, and it just it's just a credit to how great the Great Muda really was. Just an awesome talent. It's Pettacino knows as he continues to hype up the uh, Great American Bash Tour headed to Boston Gardens on July the eighth. It's a Kevin Sullivan promo. He's wearing Celtic green, the Boston Celtics green. Of course, he's coming home to his hometown of Boston, and he doesn't really sell himself as a babyface, but he's sure playing it up uh, being a hometown guy here in Boston. He's not really shitting on the town or mentioning how he moved to Daytona Beach because he hates Boston or anything. So I'm curious how this turned out with the fans in attendance. Were they pro-Sullivan or were they trained to just hate the heels and they were anti-Sullivan? It's just kind of interesting because every week Sullivan kind of puts over Boston as his hometown as they continue to sell this uh, street fight match between Sullivan and Steiner here at uh, Bash in Boston Garden. Tag team action with the New Zealand Militia taking on Randy Rose. Again, it's Jacko victory and Randy Rose again. Randy Rose this week teaming up with Bob Emery. Randy Rose coming from the dark side. Bob Emery this week from parts unknown. You know, if I was that announcer, if I didn't have a hometown for Bob Emery, I think I would have just skipped over it rather than sounding like a complete idiot and announcing Bob Emery for parts. And I wonder what Bob was standing there thinking when he heard that, but <laughs> it's a uh, more, more Randy Rose and Jack victory to start this. I'm sorry, Jacko victory to start this match. And Randy tags out once again, makes that mistake. Once again, he just did it last week. He'll never learn. Uh, Randy's never heard from him again, at least in the ring as a double gourd buster on Bob Emery and Rip Morgan gets the win in only three minutes, 19 seconds. And after the match, it's boomerang beatdown. And another Randy Rose concussion here. Poor Randy Rose. He's up to 10, 12 concussions now, maybe more. Uh, the, the militia wind up no choking way. Rose out with a boomerang as well post-match. And dudes wind up making the save. And I don't know what's worse, the hippie hippie shake video or feuding with the New Zealand militia. Uh, I think they're equally bad. Uh, another thing that's annoying with the militia, and it's not even them, is Jim Ross on commentary with these guys. He's like, Jacko. Like he does it all the time, oh, like yeah, making yeah. fun of the Australian accent. I'm just mm-hmm. like, dude, give it a rest. Every single time they come out, and I'm like, man, it's not funny. It just sounds ridiculous. And I, Jim Ross is annoying as shit right now. To be honest with you, four yeah, shows. Yeah. I think he just wore, he's worn out his welcome for me uh, yeah, on the grenade. I'm fine with him on the pay per views. Um, he's professional to handle the pay per views or the clashes, and and I get giving him the Saturday night program. He doesn't need to be on any of these other programs. Uh, there's plenty enough talent going around and Cornette's a baby face at this point. So he can lead as the baby face on one of those, like the power hour show with, with somebody else, obviously not Paulie, but maybe, you know, a Bob Cottle or, or, or Lance Russell, or even Gordon Soley somewhere mixed in there. It's just odd that you have five shows and Jim Ross is on four of them. It's overkill. His comedy is not good. He needs to keep that straight man. And I get it. He's getting bored. He's on so many programs. He has to kind of, uh, <laughs> diversify his portfolio, so to speak, by, uh, you know, changing things up a little bit, but it doesn't work for me. So how about instead of trying to change your character because you're on four different shows, how about just giving up a couple of those shows, JR? I mean, I understand you like the buffet, but these TV programs, they don't, they don't need to be a buffet too. You don't need all of them. Absolutely. Uh, we get a couple of back-to-back promos here. First with Teddy Long, he pimps Norman and an upcoming tag team Does, doesn't mention who, and it almost feels like this was recorded back when it was going to be Doom or the Ebony Experience, if you will. But it winds up being the skyscrapers, as you'll, you'll see here pretty soon. 
And then we also get another promo, Ric Flair at home. Uh, next week, he just continues to put over his big decision being announced next week on July 1st. Rick Steamboat in the ring against the Raider, Doug Gilbert. Steamboat's appearances feel very sporadic. If you ask me, like, he's there, but he's not there. There's it's like just periods of shows where he just goes missing in action. And when he does show up, he's not really doing a whole lot. There's not a whole, and I'm not arguing that, that he needs more promo time, but there's not really a lot of uh, Steamboat promos or really other than that one funk segment. There hasn't been a whole lot of Steamboat getting involved with anything. And, and now here with Luger, obviously, maybe we'll we'll see something coming up. But um, it just feels like Steamboat's there, but he's not there. Like Bonnie's allowing him to work certain dates only. Yeah. And even his offense in the ring seems off. Like he's not doing nearly as much as he was when he first came in and and, and things like that in these squash matches. Yeah. He's just phoning, he, it, a, phoning as, it in. Yeah, he's phoning it in. And, like, it's not him – being bad, it's just he's just not putting in the effort. And I'm wondering, you mentioned that he didn't know that they're going straight into the funk angle. I'm wondering if he was just discouraged that he didn't get a rematch or it, it, it didn't continue for him. Right. Um, and, so well, I'm just wondering. Well, he won't be here very much longer. So that's uh, very, very possible. And Steamboat gets to win here over the Raider with the top rope crossbody in a minute and 52 seconds. Pedicino knows we learn the winners of the Grand Slam contest. Congratulations to whoever won all those tapes. I hope you still have them. Go put them on eBay. I can't imagine the money you'll get for them. It's the NWA Top 10, which continues to be the same Top 10 here again this week. Promo time with Lex Luger. He's rocking shades at the end of Joe Pettacino knows. What do you think of Lex Luger in these shades? <laughs> it just looked awesome. And this is one <laughs> of those quick promos that they did with Michael Hayes. But yeah, the, the shades themselves were awesome. So yeah, this 1989, is, but so glorious. Yeah, this is only a 10 to 15 second plug promo. He's basically just selling his feud with Ricky Steamboat coming up on the bash. Nothing to it, but Luger looked cool here anyway. And you don't get to see that say that very often, that Luger looks cool in his uh, gear necessarily anyway. And it's on to our main event for pro. Kevin Sullivan and Mike Rotunda taking on the Steiner brothers. And Sullivan, I marked down here that he seemed uh, pretty stiff with the Steiners, not that... uh they wouldn't give it back, but the varsity club can't seem to control the Steiners. Seemed to be the story they were telling in this match. Every time they got the upper hand, the, the Steiners would come right back on them. Every time they got one of the Steiners in their corner, uh, they couldn't keep them there. They couldn't isolate them to the heel corner. So the Steiners kind of dominated most of the match. And that was like, seemed to be the story they were telling. Teddy Long is at ringside taking notes here, even still <laughs> with the varsity, well, the former varsity club and the Steiners out there. Quick heat on Scott Steiner. Mike Rotunda finally misses a drop kick. Hot tag to Rick Steiner. A double Steiner line on, on both Varsity Club, and we get a four-way brawl. Double count out on the floor. Match went six minutes, 16 seconds. Show ends with the Steiners running off Sullivan and Rotunda. I wasn't expecting a finish here, knowing that they're going to work at the bash, but this was basic but fun. I had no problem with the match or the finish. No, I didn't either. You knew it was going somewhere. You had to pay to see the payoff to this one. I get it, but it's just a, an alarming trend with these main event matches on these TVs. Yeah, you got names in there, but you're not giving any finishes. So something to look out for going forward, definitely. We move on to Worldwide for June 24th, and Jim Ross once again hosts All By His Lonesome. And this is the second time this weekend, and not the last, that we'll see Jim Ross. I just don't understand it. But this is one of those shows where we get one of those really shitty ring announcers that try to sound like something they're not and, and they screw things up and they sound like an idiot. And I don't know, man, it's just, um, you think that they, that by this point in the company with the money they have with Ted Turner, that they can afford to 
hire a traveling ring announcer, even if they weren't the best, even if they weren't Gary Michael Capetta for these syndicated shows, you think they'd hire somebody that's halfway decent and send them around the loop. Uh, very unprofessional. I mean, every week on the WWF, you knew who you were getting, whether even if it was Mike McGurk or the Fink or, or whomever, you knew what you were getting. And, and they were professional. Even if McGurk wasn't the greatest ring announcer of all time, you could expect her every week. You know what I mean? And here it's just, mm-hmm. it's just like a local guy they find and throw in the ring. And some of them are just not good. In fact, probably half of them aren't very good. Yeah, absolutely. It's just not a good look. You're having somebody in there who has really no idea what's going on or who these people are and things like that. Whereas, like you said, you you may not be the greatest, like Mel Phillips and Mike McGurk. They weren't the best, but, you know, Mike McGurk, she, she has a distinguished voice and you can point it out when you hear yeah. it. And mm-hmm. she has her quirks and things like that that you listen for, but you expect it, like you said. So, you, you know, she's know the product. She travels with these guys. And she's not going to mess up. She may have a, a flub up here and there, but at least you know you know what you're going to get. Whereas this, you have no idea. It's dangerous, to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah. Luckily, this is taped, and so if if something got too out of hand, maybe they could have you know squashed it at the very least. Uh, but this show kicks off. It's Ricky Santana taking on Big Al Green. He's not just Al Green, Steve. He's Big Al Green. They make sure to mention that Teddy Long out scouting again, and he just scouts everyone at this point. Shitty chops from Green, and if you watch them, man, they just kind of, when you want to do a real chop, a good chop, you want to follow through your hand. It doesn't stop at the chest, it follows through, and your hand winds up behind the guy when you're done with the move. Al Green just lays these chops in, and they they couldn't have felt good on Santana because he he stops on Ricky's chest, just boom, like thudding chops to poor Ricky. And Santana has enough, he spins it around, and he lights Al Green up with a few chops of his own. Santana actually does a dive off the top rope with a double axe handle. So that was kind of cool. I really wasn't expecting that from Santana. Flying forearm or flying burrito ends this one in three minutes and 39 seconds. A nothing match, but what follows it, oh, that's that's a whole new story. It's yet another music video feature on the Dynamic Dudes, and it kicks off with a postcard plastered on the screen that says, Dynamic Dudes at Play, to the tune of The Future's So Bright, I Gotta Wear Shades. It's basically the Dynamic Dudes at Play on the beach. So we see them in the water with some ladies who probably don't even know them. They're on jet skis. For some reason, they're hanging around some little kids, which was a little questionable. They've got some water squirters. They weren't even guns, just kind of those cheap water squirters. You push them and they shoot water out. They're playing putt-putt. They're down on their hands and knees looking into the windmill. I don't know what the hell's going on. They're playing chicken fights. It's just, I, I don't even know how to describe this. The worst video yet. This may be the thing that really turned the fans on them. And the, sh- and the video ends telling you or maybe warning you that you can see the dudes at a beach near you. Very soon, Steve. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I want to go to that beach. but um, <laughs> Stay far yeah, away from that maybe. beach. I'm thinking Tommy Young and Pat Patterson are hanging out on that beach somewhere. Might be a nude beach, too. Uh, yeah, no thanks on that. No, again, like it, it sucks. It was terrible. It was a horrible video. Uh, but I will say, man, hopefully they have fun doing it. I know they weren't really buying it, and they didn't really, probably didn't care for the gimmick at all. But hopefully they have fun. They got to, they got to do a lot more than some of these other people that came into town. And it seems like they clearly had people that were invested in <laughs> Jim Ross. They got to do some things they probably wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. So hopefully they have fun with it. That's all, that's all you can hope for at this point because it's going nowhere. Just shit. Yeah, this is a case of I've never seen anyone push this hard 
and just not get over what's in fact the opposite happens and we'll see that as the uh, shows continue and by the great american bash oh there's we're going to be listening to some of the audio in their match against the skyscrapers i promise you that when we get to the bash pay-per-view that's for damn sure but that's that's a few weeks away still and what's not a few weeks away is this next match involving sid vicious and poor bob emery and yes bob emery is poor bob emery here teddy long joins commentary and it's kind of weird because they mentioned Jim Ross mentions on commentary that Sid is with Gary Hart and Hart isn't there because he's so confident in Sid that he doesn't need to be there. But haven't we already been told otherwise? Haven't we already been told by Gordon Soley on the Power Hour that Teddy Long is now the manager of the skyscrapers? So shitty continuity here because Teddy Long doesn't sell it at all that he's going to be managing Sid. He does mention that he's got a new tag team debuting here next week on Worldwide. But he doesn't mention it by name as the skyscrapers. And he doesn't really play it off like he's hiding anything either. So it makes me feel like this whole thing was done when it was still originally supposed to be Doom. I'm not sure. What do you think? Yeah, probably. Um, and this is just typical NWA, WCW, whatever you want to call them. I know they have major issues with giving away title defenses from tapings and, and, and things like that and filming and, and stuff. So it's like they put shit in the can and then like, don't even mess with it when things change. Like who cares? Nobody's going to pick up on that. Uh, what the hell's a podcast, you know, that sort of <laughs> stuff. So uh, they're not thinking 2020, what's going to, what's going to be said about it. But even back then people are going to pick up on it. Sure. Like, uh, the smart fans are going to anyway. It's just lazy. Uh, that's really all it is. Clearly at this point, Sid was told, you know, or the guys weren't told what to do when they went out there. They, they might have been given a finish, but other than that, it was up to them to go out there and do whatever it was they wanted to do to get themselves over. And Sid was green enough here that he kind of didn't know better. And I think he just went out there and he told Bob Emery what they were doing. And it really didn't match up to what Sid was all about. Sid just wanted to show people what he was capable of doing. And this was really not the, the spot to do it in. So... Uh, Sid takes a, a crossbody by by Bob Emery, throws him off on a cover. That's something maybe you save for a match with Sting or somebody like that. But he really, what he was trying to do was he wanted to press Bob Emery in the air to kick off to show his power there. Uh, it just looks so weird to to watch Sid here. He wants to do a side headlock takeover. Sid does a side headlock. Can you a six foot? How tall is Sid? Six foot eight, six foot nine at least. And he's doing yeah, a, a side headlock takeover on this guy. It looked terrible. It wasn't Sid's fault. He's just too tall to be doing this move. No giants should be doing this move. And he does this move because he has Bob Emery pick his head and place him in head scissors. So now Sid's in a head scissors and he escapes by wanting to do a kip up. Sid wants to show over the world that he can do a kip up. So he has allowed a jobber to put him in a head scissors. I just, I don't think he grasped that probably not a good idea. Not that it really matters. Sid tries the kip up. I have no doubt that he could do the kip up. I've seen him do it, but he kind of flubs it. He doesn't hit it. He doesn't land it right. And oh man, that pisses Sid <laughs> off. And Sid stands up and the number one rule, or at least I don't know if it's a rule, but you see this happen quite often. When a wrestler screws a move up or looks like looks to be a fool, the very next move that they do, it's basically a shoot because they got to get their heat back. They got to get people to forget about that flub that they just created. So Sid tries a kip up, kind of falls on his knees, hops right up and clotheslines the living hell out of Bob Emery, and I put this on Twitter too, a video of this clothesline, because he knocks Bob Emery for a backflip. And Bob Emery is not Mark Young. He's not taking an earthquake backflip 
uh, clothesline that he intentionally takes the bag. Sid forces this giant job. Bob Irby's a pretty stocky built job guy. And Sid clotheslines him so hard. It sends Bob Emery in midair upside down in a backflip out of this clothesline. Just a sick, sick move. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the moral of the story is don't piss off Sid. <laughs> I, don't, even if it's, I don't even know if it was Bob Emery's fault. Enough. Just don't no, be in Sid's way when Sid gets pissed off. Might be, might be exactly. the, the moral of the story. <laughs> don't piss off Sid, even if it's Sid doing the, being the one to piss himself off. So it, it's one of those one of the most vicious and I guess you could say pun intended uh, clotheslines that I've seen. Cause like you said, it, it goes into a shoot when you mess up and the way Sid is and the way everybody knows Sid is. Yeah. You, you knew, you know, Bob Emery felt that one probably for a couple of days. And poor Bob was, was st- poor Bob was probably still rocking from that clothesline, but it doesn't end there. They do the old routine where you choke the guy across the top rope. You you kind of stick his throat across the top rope, and then you jerk the rope back, and the guy takes a, a simple back bump. It actually looks kind of crappy most of the time unless you do it right. And uh, <laughs> I've never seen it done like this before. Sid uh, places Emery's throat across the top rope and proceeds to jerk the ropes back at a uh, such a force that it flings Bob Emery with no option but to take a flying bump backwards to the middle of the ring. I just beat the shit out of Bob Emery here and then still finished him off with the power bomb and the leg drop match only went two minutes and 43 seconds and he damn near killed him twice. (laughs) It must've felt like a lifetime for Bob Emery. My goodness. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this before or what, but just imagine the jobbers in the back and draw the straws and the sticks and the short end of the stick. gets Sid that night. I'm just leaving. I'm not even messing with it. (laughs) No, thanks. You know, between the uh, Road Warriors and their green stage and Sid here, I wonder how many job guys walked into the dressing room and saw their name on the board, the chalkboard or, or what have you, and saw their name up there and the uh, roadies back in the early 80s or Sid here on the uh, on the other side of that versus sign and kind of just turned around and, and, and left, maybe never to return again. <laughs> I, I can't say I blame them. I'm sure it, it only continues from here. Uh, again, I can't wait for the bash and to see what he does to, to Johnny Ace. <laughs> but uh, that, that's 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 a ways off, and we're back here on Worldwide. It's Wild Bill Irwin over Mike Justice, another basic squash, bicycle pump kick, gets the win in a minute and 38 seconds. At least these Irwin matches are going short. Bill takes out his bullwhip. He starts whipping Justice with it post-match. Ricky Santana once again makes a save. He takes the whip this time, but then after Irwin gets out of the ring, Ricky Santana hands him the whip back. So he chases this guy off because he's beating the shit out of people with a whip, including Ricky in the past. But then he gives the, the weapon back to him. So Ricky is uh, weaponless, and he hands Bill Irwin the whip. What's to stop Irwin from getting back in the ring and taking both guys out? What an idiot I thought Ricky Santana was here. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. I didn't pick up on him giving it back to him, but I thought Irwin stole it from him. That's what my notes say, but I could definitely be off. I didn't really pick up on how he just gave it back to him, but yeah. Why the hell would you give a bad guy's weapon back? I mean, you're just asking for trouble at that point. Yeah, I mean, he didn't hand it to him, but he threw it down on the apron for him to take. So, yeah, it just was goofy. It's uh, Rick Steiner in singles competition. We haven't seen a whole lot of that lately. Uh, He gets a win here over Jim Bryant. Michael Hayes joins commentary for this match. Uh, This is the fun one where Jim Bryant's down on all fours and Rick Steiner sits on him like he's kind of riding him like a bull or a horse or whatever you want to call it. And he pulls Tommy Young over. And he seats Tommy Young in front of him on Jim Bryant. So now they're both riding Jim Bryant. And I can't imagine 
uh, how much Tommy Young loved this spot here. It, just felt, like, it felt like being right at home for Tommy Young, I'm sure. And uh, <laughs> the finish, though, oh, my God, a belly-to-belly. Jim Bryant's a big guy. Rick Steiner barely rotates him. The 325 pounds, I'd, I'd say at least, uh, barely rotates Bryant. Bryant almost lands on top of Rick as Rick's trying to pivot over, but he does wind up hitting the move. And Rick gets the win here in two minutes and 33 seconds. A rough finish, but uh, another fun Rick Steiner squash. Yeah, really good stuff. I'm here for the Steiner brothers all day. Their squashes, the SST, the roadies, and Sid. Man, some good, good, um, <laughs> good, good squashes. It's the dynamic dudes taking on the New Zealand militia. It's the battle of the skateboards and the boomerangs. Teddy Long again at ringside, and then he joins commentary, pretending to cry over the potential retirement of Ric Flair. Uh, so some of these guys joining commentary, it's just all about getting over that flair and funk program. We've seen that for weeks now. The finish of this match came out of nowhere and not in a good way. And honestly, in a bad way, there was no hot tag. There was no build up, There was no double down. There was, it just kind of happened. Jack victory's working a front chancery, a front face lock on uh, Johnny Ace here. And Johnny Ace slowly works his way back to his corner. Blind tags in Shane Douglas. Jack Victory doesn't see it. Shane comes flying off the top rope with a sunset flip and just pins Victory, just like that out of nowhere, in the middle of a front face lock spot. Match only went four minutes and 40 seconds, and just a weird finish in the middle of a, a boring front chancery. And the post-match beatdown, the Militia beat down uh, both of the dynamic dudes, beat down Shane pretty good with the boomerang. So the Militia trying to get some heat back there. What did you think of this finish? I mean, I didn't. I wasn't looking forward to this match, to be right. honest with you. So you just wanted it to be um, over. So <laughs> it was a fitting end to the match, to be honest with you. Like these guys are boring, all four of them for the most part. Um, I'm not buying the militia. Uh, Jr. kind of is annoying when it comes to them. But yeah, it was a very flat finish. I was kind of surprised because uh, you know you you can kind of pick up on when a match is coming to a close or. At the tag match in 89, they all usually have the same sort of formula of a hot tag and a crazy finish type deal. And we didn't get any of that. And he did the sunset flip off the top, and that was it. And I'm like, um, hmm, okay. But, yeah, so it was, like, very flat and uneventful. Nothing, again, really nothing like you mentioned. Yeah, at least it was over. Yeah, absolutely. Ranger Ross over Snake Brown. Snake, quite the character and a unique look, but not a great wrestler. And at this point, Snake's been in the ring for a good 10 years here, mostly down in Georgia and Florida. In fact, I, uh, I, before we, I, we did the show, I was curious on a few of the job guys. When I saw Johnny Meadows had passed away, I looked up a few other job guys that we've been uh, covering here lately, and it appears Snake Brown just passed away last year in 2019. So RIP to Snake Brown as well. Uh, Ranger Ross with the combat kick here in a minute and 47 seconds. Nothing match. Just uh, Ranger Ross being featured again on TV, even if it's just mostly on syndication. It's Pettacino Nose top 10 again. Still hasn't moved. I don't understand the point of this top 10. Sometimes it changes week to week. Other times it's it's the same 10 guys for a month or longer. I don't care if it doesn't change every week, but uh, and maybe it really can't based on the, the way they produced shows back then. But I just I wish they had more of a better format. Like it changes every two weeks. Does it change every month? It's just all over the place, and it's really hard to keep track of. Other than the top three or four guys, the the rest of the the totem pole just seems pointless at this point. Yeah, it'd be nice if they tell you, you know, this is the NWA top ten for the week of, right? You know, whatever the week is. Yeah, and that'll June twenty fourth. And we know that'll happen later with Tony Schiavone in nineteen ninety. We'll get more of a weekly top ten versus what we're what's going on right here. Oh yeah. 
You better believe it. No way. Tony Schiavone coming in and making making improvements on things? No way. No way. The Yeti! He even proved the Yeti well, we know what simply, he simply by calling him the Yeti. So Tony Tony could do everything. Yeah. And you know what he did with Coliseum Video, so. Um... Oh, yeah. He enhanced that uh, tenfold. Uh, we move on with this show, though. The main event is the Great Muda taking on Scott Steiner. And what, is that, what, what does that look like on paper to you? Is that not a main event? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, sign me up for that. I'd pay to see that match. Yeah, and we've seen the Steiners take on Muda in some tag team matches over in Japan and even at Starcade 90, but I don't know that we ever got a Scott Steiner and Great Muda one-on-one match there in the in the prime years of, say, 91, 92, 90, 91, 92. So this was pretty cool, but too short to really be a whole lot. This actually plays off last week's match between Dick Murdoch and Muda where Scott Steiner came in to make the save and wound up getting attacked by Muda as well. So that's why we have this match here. Scott wisely jumps Muda here. He's seen what Muda's done in the past, so Scotty's the one to do the jumping. And everyone seems to do this now, even the job guys. Shows how much of a threat Muda is, I thought, how feared he is. They, they know what he can do, and they're not going to let him get to them first. Uh, Scott gets in some shots until Gary Hart distracts him. Great Muda takes over. This actually happens twice in the match. The second time, Gary puts Muda's foot on the rope during a power slam cover. That upsets Scotty. Scotty kind of gets distracted once again by Gary Hart there. Muda takes control. Scott makes the big comeback but telegraphs a backdrop. Muda kind of just stops, uh, delivers a thrust chop right into the throat of Steiner, and makes the cover. Uh, I thought thrust chops in the throat were illegal, but apparently not here, at least not this week. So, yeah, last week, Muda gets the win by stomping on Dick Murdoch. This week, it's a simple chop to the throat that gets the win in 3 minutes and 34 seconds over Scott Steiner. I was really looking forward to this. I know it was 89, so I was expecting Muda to probably get the win here. I was hoping for a little more action before we went home. I don't even mind the finish. I just buy this more of a finish after these guys have been in the ring a little longer. Yeah, me too. Uh, I wish it would have... How long was it? Six minutes? Three minutes. Three and a half minutes. Three minutes. Yeah, if it was six minutes, it would have been a lot better. Not to say that this three-minute match wasn't that good it definitely was it was entertaining while they were in there but it almost just feels like scott even though you can see it maybe they just felt like he wasn't ready so it's kind of just a quick syndicated feud not knowing what they were going to do that type of deal going forward but yeah i, I would have loved to have seen more from this absolutely yeah and so uh post-match the uh former varsity club come down to the ring, Sullivan and Rotunda. They have a laugh at Scott Steiner, and then they actually attack Scotty. Uh, Rick Steiner winds up making the save, but he gets tossed out of the ring. He returns with a steel chair. No, he doesn't return with a steel chair. I apologize. Rick goes outside. He goes looking for uh, something to combat the uh, Sullivan and Rotunda, and he looks under the ring, and he pulls out a briefcase, and I thought that was kind of an interesting weapon to be laying around ringside. Made me think of IRS, <laughs> oddly enough. And uh, Rick gets back in the ring with a brief- briefcase and runs off the former varsity club. And uh, just odd. What an odd weapon for Rick Steiner to go find a briefcase, <laughs> not just a chair. Yeah, who the heck's storing their briefcase under the ring? That makes <laughs> no sense. Well, if you listen to Tony Schiavone, I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to get into it. Never mind. <laughs> you know, I thought on paper, Muda and Scott Steiner, I mean, sign me up, and there's a finish on TV. Kudos to the bookers until you tell me the match is three and a half minutes, and it ends in the chop to the throat. I thought it was a cheap way based on the time they were given, and I know we kind of already mentioned all of that, but I just I want to get that all out there again. I don't know, man. I, 
these main event matches on syndication have been going about six minutes or so, which has been the perfect amount of time for syndicated TV main event, I thought. And here, the week that we really needed a six-minute match, we wind up getting a three-and-a-half-minute match. So bad call this week based on the time they gave these guys anyway. And that takes us into World Championship Wrestling for June 24th, the nighttime program. And this is we're back to 6.05, and this is a special one-hour episode of World Championship Wrestling. And it kicks right off with highlights of Lex Luger attacking Ricky Steamboat from The Clash. And your hosts tonight are Jim Ross and well, Michael Hayes is back, unfortunately. Uh, in case anyone forgot, Hayes has been uh, able to return to co-hosting duties here on the Saturday night program. And we kick things off right away with a, a big angle. We get a six-man tag team match. It's really a backdrop to the angle. It's the Midnight Express and Dr. Death, Steve Williams, taking on Fred Avery, Jeff James, and Keith Steinborn. And Michael Hayes, obviously, he's on commentary here, and he's running down Dr. Death, uh, mentioning how Steve Williams couldn't keep friends or partners, referencing the the varsity club. And uh, basically, then Hayes turns to running down the Midnight Express. He calls them runners-up at best because they did lose to the Birds in the finals of the World Tag Title Tournament. And uh, another note I hear Dr. Death out here in a, a bright yellow singlet. I thought he looked pretty cool in the, in the bright yellow, by the way. Just wanted to throw that out there. But uh, Michael Hayes continues on with his uh, nonsense on the mic, and he actually comes over to the guardrail and starts taunting Jim Cornette for losing at the Clash, and they have a verbal joust of, of sorts. I don't know if you caught it, but Michael Hayes is still recycling that 7-Up line here. Never had it, never will. Dr. Death has, finally has enough listening to Michael Hayes' mouth, so Doc isn't really needed in the mass. The Midnights are handling the three job guys by themselves. Doc drops down off the apron. He comes over and confronts Michael Hayes. Jim Ross reminds Hayes that he, he can't get involved. He's an announcer, and of course, Hayes has already been suspended before from announcing after his tussle with Lex Luger, so Michael uses that as his excuse <laughs> that he can't get involved with Doc. We all know Michael Hayes would never get, <laughs> get into fisticuffs with Dr. Death anyway, but so the match goes on, though, as the bullshit on the, on the outside continues. And uh, instead, Michael Hayes, since he can't get involved with Dr. Death, he calls out his bird brothers. He calls out Gordy. Gordy joins commentary. Jimmy Garvin out there as well. Uh, the match continues real quick. It's a double flapjack, and then Doc tags in, drops an elbow to the back of the head of James. And the Midnights and Doc get the win in just over two minutes because, like I said, this match really wasn't even a match. It was a backdrop to the angle, which we're getting to next. What did you think of the initial part of this angle here with, with Michael Hayes getting into uh, a verbal match with Jim Cornette and then Dr. Death? I think Hayes, now that he has his boys back together and he's a heel and he has the title, I think he's in a better position to be able to talk shit. and He's more believable as far as that goes. I thought him and Cornette going back and forth was pretty good. I, I actually didn't mind this. I thought it was pretty entertaining. And so the angle continues. Jim Cornette climbs into the ring. He gets on the house mic. He calls out the birds. He tells them to get in the ring, give the, the Midnight Express a, uh, another, or, uh, give the Midnight Express a world tag team title shot since the birds think they can beat him so easily, so handily. And so Michael Hayes, wisely like a heel, says the birds didn't come prepared to wrestle. And I marked down, I have no idea what the hell the kind of look the free birds are going for here. There's some of them are tie dye. Some of them are airbrushed. There's, there's ripped jeans. They, they look like, a comedy show here of clothing. And uh, no sooner than I write this down in my notes, than Jim Cornette uh, mentions that, that they look like they're dressed from the Salvation Army. So I'm glad I wasn't the only one that picked up on just the weird sense of uh, style that the Freebirds had here this week. Uh, I think the only one that looked cool was Jimmy Garvin. He had like the cutoff <laughs> shirt with the fabulous Freebird airbrushed. And like I said, he was pretty cut. He was getting on them Hogan vitamins, and he looked pretty cool. Like He looked really good here. It's probably the best Jimmy Garvin's look. Other than that, yeah, Gordy rocking like a 
light yellow and pink tie-dye shirt. He he looks so out of place with that on. <laughs> um, but I'm not going to be the one to tell him that he looks Little. like a dork with that no. shirt on. Uh, Definitely not. No thanks. Not even now that he's dead, I wouldn't tell Terry Gordy that. No. Terry Gordy can do whatever the hell he wants. I mean, the guy <laughs> died like three times, right, before he before he actually finally died? I mean, he's quite the man. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just back and forth on the mic between basically Michael Hayes for the most part and Jim Cornette. Cornette saying everything he can to get Garvin and Hayes in the ring, and they just won't budge. So what does he do next? He says he knew the Freebirds were cowards, but he never thought he'd see the day that Terry Gordy would be yellow. And that's all it took. He didn't barely finish that sentence, and I bought into this like it was real. Terry, it's just reminded me of like one of those badasses that you know in the bar that people like to run their mouths, and there's this guy that shuts you up right away, just punches you right in the mouth when you when you, when you start shit with him. And so, <laughs> Cornette basically calls Terry Gordy yellow, and he doesn't barely finish that sentence where Gordy's already taking his shirt off and charging at the ring. And so Jimmy Garvin kind of has to follow Gordy to the ring, and we get a wild brawl here between the, the Midnights and Gordy and Garvin. And Michael Hayes can't really get involved, but just because he can't get involved, still can't trust him. He's Michael Hayes. So Dr. Death kind of stands guard on the outside, watches over Michael Hayes while this brawl's going on in the ring. Bobby Eaton nails a missile dropkick in the middle of the brawl. And it's just, it's back and forth. It breaks down. It's really fun. The crowd's getting hot. They're going all at it. And out of nowhere, Stan Lane pins Jimmy Garvin with an inside cradle in the middle of this brawl. It's not even a match. And Tommy Young's in the ring, obviously, from the six-man tag. So he doesn't even hesitate, though. This is not a match in any way, shape, or form. Instead of trying to break this up or, or standing back, Stanley goes right into the cradle, and Tommy Young doesn't even hesitate to drop down and make a three count in a brawl. So basically, the story here is the Midnights have proven they can beat the Birds. The crowd pops huge here. And so, uh, I don't know. What would you think of the whole angle? I thought it was awesome. I haven't put down here awesome hot angle to start this show. It was great, great stuff. And it really was. I really liked the Cornette line. Like, he knew like he wasn't going to get anywhere with those those pussies, uh, Garvin and Hayes. So right. he went to the guy that he knew was vulnerable as far as pissing him off and making him get into the ring and fight. So uh, I thought that was very well done. It, it fits perfect for what the Freebirds were, were at that time. Yeah, and the bra was cool. I liked the spontaneous pin in the middle of a fight i don't know anybody who's doing that in the middle of a bar fight or something <laughs> inside like that. cradle like, and roll the... you up and get that, that three count <laughs> um i don't know who does that but it got you excited and ready to see the actual match and when you do an angle like this hopefully the payoff's good yeah i might have seen a missile drop kick or two off of a you know the bar at some point in my lifetime but i've, I've never seen an inside cradle during a fight so yeah that's where we are there in the post-fight uh, promo, though, it's the birds. They're hot. They're pissed off. They're back out with Jim Ross, and Jim Ross is goading them. Why won't you put the titles on the line? You know, it, it, later on in the show, because apparently now Jim Ross is matchmaker, which he kind of is, but not here in kayfabe world. And so Jim Ross is like goading Michael Hayes and company into uh, giving the Midnights their title match they requested later in the show to prove they are the free birds that they used to be. And so it finally works, and Hayes agrees, and we have a match set up for. Later in the show, the Birds defending the World Tag Titles against the Midnight Express. This was a long part of the show, this whole angle with the, the opening into the brawl and all this promo stuff, but it really, it didn't really lack. I mean, it really, it filled the time good. well. It, it didn't really drag. I, I enjoyed a lot of this, even if the Freebirds were involved. Yeah, me too. This is the first thing that the Freebirds have done that I actually enjoyed. I think everything I've enjoyed so far, the Freebirds has Gordy involved in some way, shape, or form here. Same here. It's all because of Gordy. 
And, you know, he'll be back to Japan sooner or later. So we'll, we'll see what happens when we get to that point in the year. We'll appreciate we, him while we can. Yes, absolutely. I appreciate Terry Gordy. I'll appreciate him maybe even more when he's gone. I, I want him back, but I don't know that he returns, not for quite a long time, and certainly not as a free bird. So this is Gordy's last real run as a bird, now that I think about it. And wow. it's TV, TV champion Sting over Chance Myers in a mere 25 seconds with the Scorpion Deathlock. And this is really only here, once again, as a backdrop to get to a promo here. It's uh, Sting setting up a promo with Luger. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, Sting's brought over by Jim Ross. Jim Ross mentions the transformation of Lex Luger here lately, especially at Clash with his turn on Ricky Steamboat. And JR points out that Sting and Luger are really good buddies. They they work out together. They take vacations together. They go they go out to dinner together. And so uh, JR asks Sting, what do you make of all this? And the reason I did gra- grab the Luger soundbite, we're going to play that in a minute because I absolutely have to play it. I don't care how long it runs. But I clipped off Sting's part of the promo simply because the Luger part of the promo goes long, but, oh, it's fantastic. So everyone listen. Everyone make sure to, to tune in and listen. But I did capture the end of the promo of Sting, which is basically, Sting, what are your thoughts on Lex Luger's turn? And Sting basically saying he's disappointed in his friend. And that brings Luger out, and that brings us to the soundbite that I'm getting ready to play. And, Steve, I know you're going to have a lot to say, and we'll talk about that on the other side. Everybody listen carefully. Some of the best work I've ever heard. The bottom line is... I guess I'm just disappointed. I guess you, I understand a good friend. I can see where you can be very disappointed. And, well, speak of the devil, and out he walks. Well, I, guess we'll, I guess we'll find out something right now. Who knows? I know if anybody in the world can reach the man, I know it's you. I guess I'm the only one. Maybe we'll do it right now. Let's just see. Obviously, you heard the comments, uh, Lex. A lot of people are concerned about, quite obviously, the way you've conducted yourself in recent weeks. Let me get this straight. You're disappointed in me. You know, I might expect that from your typical moron who's sitting out here in your studio audience or your average couch potato sitting there at home who has nothing to do with their time. But Stinger, buddy old pal, we're winners. We're doers. We're not watchers. You know, when you first came into the NWA, I took you under my wing. Oh, shut up. I nurtured you. I brought you along. I allowed you to travel with me. I allowed you to come to the gym with me and work out. So maybe someday, You'll have the training techniques and the physique of a total package Lex Luger. I took you to the finest restaurants. I taught you how to read a line list. I took you and taught you how to dress. What clothes to wear make you a stylish man of the world. And you're disappointed in me. First of all, I didn't know that you were were allowing me to travel with you or allowing you to have a a, a nice meal with you and things like that. Let me just allow myself to say right now, you just make me sick, pal. You know, I got to think that a lot of your former friends, quite candidly, feel that way. I know there's a lot of little kids here tonight, a lot of kids watching at home. A lot of little kids. Yeah, kids. They look up to you. You know, it's been backwards all along. 
You see, you should have all been catering to me. You see, I'm sick and tired of catering, especially those little snot-nosed kids. I'm sick of your petty little intrusions into my life. When I'm eating, when I'm walking through airports, when I'm in hotels. Lex, can I have your autograph? No, you can't. If you have an autograph of Lex Luger, you better frame it because there will be no more. No more pictures, no more nothing. And all you pretty little girls out there, I am sick and tired of your stupid little flowers, your little love poems. Do you actually think I read those pathetic little things? A man such as myself who could have the pick of the most exotic, beautiful women that the face of this earth has to offer. Do you really think so? That is so pathetic. That's not the only thing I hear that's pathetic, in my opinion. I want to tell you something. What about... I know what you're thinking about. Sting is your friend, but what about Ricky Steamboat? He never did one bad thing to you in his entire life. You know, I'm starting to think I have the group Sting and Steamboat in the same boat. They both care too much what these idiots out here think. It's time to put yourself first if you want to be a winner in this sport. It's a rough sport. Ricky Steamboat, you've been living in a fairy tale existence for way, way too long. And I've just woken you up. And if you want to do the smart thing, you avoid Lex Luger, you'll give up your number one ranking. Because I'm the U.S. champion, I should have been there anyways. So Ricky Steamboat, if you're wondering why in the middle of the night your little boy's waking up to sobs, if you wonder why your family has cold chills, it's because of this. The total package Lex Luger is the man in this sport today. He is the premier wrestler in our sport today. And they're worried about your health because there is 275 pounds of rock hard muscle who doesn't care if it's going around you or through you to get the job done because I am number one. And there's an old saying, Jim Ross, and it goes like this. Ricky Steamboat, a good big man will beat a good little man any day of the week. All right. A lot of things, a lot of things are wrong here, and that's one of them. Fans, we'll be back. Lex, can I have your autograph? No, you can't. Tell me that didn't sound like a shoot. Oh, it sounded it sounded awesome. Like the emphasis on the words and the delivery was impeccable. Uh, it was just excellent. The first time around, I didn't really pay attention. I was just listening to what Lex was saying, but the crowd was starting to to cheer for him a little bit. And that, like, there you could hear one little guy, one kid say, "Tell him Lex." And then when he started talking about his muscles and things like that, the crowd popped. The women definitely popped. So he was getting some cheers there. So. Um, that center stage crowd was different and uh, pretty cool, but the promo itself, uh, this is hands down. I mean, I don't know every Lex Luger promo. I don't know every interview, but you could, you know when you hear a good promo. And when I heard this, you kind of mentioned to me like the week prior, leading up to it, like, dude, we got to talk about this. So I was looking forward to it. And when I heard it and I was like, holy, holy shit, no wonder you want to talk about this because yeah. – I did not expect Lex Luger to be able to cut a promo like that. That's not in him, to no. be honest with you. Yeah. It doesn't feel yeah. like it's something he does. Right. And he hasn't done it. He probably hasn't done it since this one. I, I just thought, like, like I mentioned earlier, with the promo from the week, weeks of shows prior to this one, that he probably jumped for joy when they told him he was turning heel. 
he he bought into it. He was rejuvenated. It was like a fresh lease on life. He's taking the ball and running, and uh, he's the MVP right now for, the, oh, for these shows so by far. far. Like these, this class up, this episode by I gotta, far. I got to be honest close. with you. Like, yeah, I got to be honest with you. I never thought we were going to call Lex Luger the MVP of uh, any particular episode of the Grenade, especially uh, because of a promo. And I mean, Terry Funk's promos, most of them have been tremendous, like some of the best stuff, uh, you know, I've ever really heard, I mean, entertainment value wise, uh, but this rivals, you know, even the Terry Funk promos is probably being the best promo in, in the, the entire first six months here of the NWA for me, which is saying a lot because it's, it's Lex Luger. And uh, as much as I know you're a big fan of him, he was never the greatest promo guy. I mean, at best, he was uh, adequate. It got over what he needed to get over. He never really drew you in like a Jake the Snake or a Ric Flair or Randy Savage on the promo. And, man, this is just tremendous from all different levels. I, I have to say, like like you said, you can't really comment on every Lex Luger promo ever, but I think we've heard them, and if they had really caught our minds, we'd, we'd remember other promos. We could reference at least one other promo, and last week's was pretty okay, but it was nothing compared to this. Lex Luger was out there for five no. straight minutes. Five straight minutes, never stuttered, never paused, never searched for words. He touched on so many different things. Uh, Sting, the fans, and Ricky Steamboat, and just everything. And it all fit together, and it all made sense. And and like I said, a lot of this sounded like a shoot, and it sounded like uh, the real Lex Luger. I mean, it really felt like he was speaking from the heart, maybe not a good heart, <laughs> but, but speaking from the heart, oh, I, just, I still can't heart. get over. Like you said, the delivery of some of these lines just felt absolutely realistic. And I have to keep going back to Lex. Can I have your autograph? No, you can't. I mean, it just felt, felt so real. Yeah. And uh, like he was tr- truly right. sick of having to sign autographs and dealing with kids and, and things like that. And I know he was in a different place then too, yeah. but uh, yeah, He's I can't, I can't. Fed up being a cookie cutter. Good guy. He was just fed up with all of it, and this is what you get. I'm here for all of this. I, I can't wait to see where it goes. I, you know, everybody knows I love Lex Luger, but uh, this is just excellent. I think the only other promo I remember is when he told Ludwig Borger to love it or leave it. <laughs> and that's more because it's a kind of Americana-type deal more than right, anything right, else. So right. I, I think that's really the only other Lex Luger promo I know of. So. Yeah, it's crazy. You think about uh, how long yeah. how long he was out here in the business, and this is it. I I have to say definitively, as far as my my knowledge of Luger, and I I'd like to say I probably heard just about every real promo he's ever cut. Uh, this is it. This is easily to me the best promo in Lex Luger's career, and easily probably the best promo in the first half year of the NWA here. I mean, barring maybe a couple of of Terry Funk's, which kind of get outlandish at times. This is more just a heel promo and i don't know man it's uh, some of the best stuff i've heard so far and i i try never to play um sound clips that go more than two if they're really good three minutes this was a five minute clip and that's why i had to take stings part of the commentary out of here as well but it was a five minute clip man and i could not edit it down just tremendous stuff oh yeah uh, we- i'm with you i think this is the best promo 89 so far uh, unfortunately, we can't sit here and talk about it all night long. We have to move on with the program. And the World Tag Team Champion Freebirds, uh, they promised to defend the titles against the Midnight Express, so the match was made. And here we are, 
And in case you're wondering how it got on the show, Jim Ross claims that this match replaces an Eddie Gilbert main event match, uh, but he never goes into uh, detail on as to who Eddie was supposed to wrestle. So I wonder how Eddie feels about that, basically getting dumped or getting bumped here by the birds in the express. And it's really all Jim Ross's fault. So maybe, maybe Eddie should come out and flamethrow that motherfucker. I'd like to see that. I'd pay to see that. We'll get into the match action here. It's the Midnight's dominating early. Bobby Eaton with another top rope dropkick, two on the same show. Uh, he goes back up top uh, at, at one point, though, and he takes a bump. They push him off the, I don't know if the top rope or the middle rope, and he takes this bump, rib first. I mean, he basically launches himself onto the guardrail, not into the guardrail. He kind of lands on the guardrail from the middle rope. A uh, very dangerous bump there by Bobby Eaton. It actually leads to the uh, count-out finish. The birds get the win there on a count-out because Bobby Eaton's unable to return to the ring. Uh, what'd you think of the bump? What'd you think of the storyline here? Uh, the bump was awesome. Uh, Eaton, he ate it really good. Uh, it looked very realistic. The finish to the match was very flat. You have that big-time angle to start the show, and usually when you have an angle like that, it tends to lead to a title change or something like that. That's what it's going for. You caught him off guard, now you got him in the match, and you should win the titles. So it just very, it felt very flat. And it's like, here we go again, the biggest match on the card, and it ends in a non-finish. It seems to be par for the course for this company at this point. Uh, so again, that that sucked. But Bobby Eaton took one hell of a bump. Good stuff. Yeah, and I uh, wrote a note at one point while I was watching this match when the interference took place. I wrote, where the hell is Doc? Well, actually, I wrote something else, but I'm trying to be a little bit PG here this late in the episode. But I wrrote where the fuck is Doc really is what I did. If anybody if anybody really cared. But uh, Jim Ross uh, honestly uh, covers that up pretty quickly after I wondered that he claims Doc has already uh, gone to the airport. Now, why the hell was Doc out there at the beginning of the show supporting the Midnight Express, supporting the world tag team title match? He has issues with Gordy. He knows they like to get involved and interfere. But Doc leaves and go, goes to the airport. Like, why would he do that? Wouldn't he want to counteract Gordy's interference, uh, especially after they knew what happened at, at Clash of the Champions? But uh, anyways, we see Bobby Eaton get counted out. And like you said, what a bump. I wrote down amazing bump, but a shit finish, kind of basically what you said. Match went about 8 minutes, 14 seconds. The entire night to me, and maybe it was just me, but it felt built up for a title switch, even if a short one. Maybe they lose it back next week, or maybe it gets overturned somehow. But Instead, the birds keep getting force-fed to us. Meanwhile, the roadies, the midnights, even the SST are far more over, if you ask me. They're getting more of a reaction anyway than the Freebirds here, but they're forcing the Freebirds here as the World Tag Team Champions. And I, I, don't know, I don't know if it was just me that had expectations of a title change. It just felt right. Like, that's what we were getting here. And not only do we not get uh, you know a title change, the finish is a count-out, which kind of felt... That sums it up. We get a promo with the Steiner brothers and Missy Hyatt, and now they have Robin Green with them. So she's no longer just a fan in the crowd. Now she's up to uh, working the promo segments of the show, which uh, really tells the tale of where we're going here. Rick introduces Robin Green to the fans. So now that she's uh, in the segments with the, the promo segments with the Steiners, Scotty's teasing Rick here as, as Robin Green standing with them. Rick digs into his jacket, his uh, Michigan jacket. He keeps giving it to Robin Green, but somehow it keeps winding back up on Rick. I'm not really sure what that's all about. I don't know if he has a bunch of them or what the deal is, but he digs into his jacket and pulls out a, uh, a bouquet of smashed roses and he hands them over to Robin. Scotty identifies them as the neighbor's flowers. I'm not really sure how you identify a bouquet of roses as belonging to your neighbors, but Scott does that here. And this was just a 30 second segment. It really was nothing. 
just continuing to uh, further the Rick Steiner and Robin Green storyline. And it's off to the ring for the Steiner brothers, and they're accompanied to the ring by Missy Hyatt. Taking on from out of town, Snake Brown and Cruel Connection. And I always loved whenever uh, Gary Royal left and George South stayed, and every once in a while he would continue to wear the mask and the, the bodysuit as the Cruel Connection. But he was never Cruel Connection number one or number two or A or B. He was called the Cruel Connection, one man. So a one-man show, just amazing name. And <laughs> Robin Green goes from, uh, goes from the promo back to ringside. She's back sitting ringside. So she can't accompany the Steiners to the ring, but she can stand in for a promo. Go figure. So meanwhile, the Varsity Club, or what used to be called the Varsity Club, Rotunda and Sullivan show up at ringside. They go over to Robin Green. They destroy the roses. Sullivan loves screwing with woman here who is his, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if they're married by this point or still just together, but they've been together quite a long time at this point. And uh, so he's wrote woman into the storylines, I'm, I'm going to guess. And so he's taking the liberty here before he's ripped up her, her Rick Steiner's sign. This week he's ripping up her roses and throwing them back in her face. I kind of got to laugh at that. Uh, this pisses Rick off. Rick comes out, he kind of consoles Robin Green, but it also pisses Rick off. And even though this is a work, and even though this is a 31-year-old segment, man, I'm telling you, Rick jumps back up on the apron after seeing Robin Green humiliated, and he is pissed off, and he wants tagged in. And Scotty tags Rick, and I wrote in my notes, poor cruel connection, because <laughs> Rick gets in the ring and proceeds to beat down on Mr. Cruel Connection here. Overhead belly-to-belly belly ends this one in a minute and 33 seconds. What did you think of that whole Robin Green thing and, and Rick getting wanting that tag in? I thought the exact same thing. I was like, oh, this poor guy. He's about to get destroyed. <laughs> so uh, he's like bouncing up and down on the apron. Like, let me in, let me in. Looks like Snake Brown's afraid to get in. And yeah, it's very, very good stuff. I mean, it was a squash, but the Nancy stuff definitely helped enhance it a little bit. Yeah, to say the least. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, definitely a fun segment. They they do a really good job writing these Steiner segments, especially the Rick Steiner segments. I'm sure Rick is yeah, thankful he, that he George George Scott is long gone. That's uh, Rick's really oh, yeah. turned around. And this this angle and all this stuff has no business being anything other than complete garbage. But Rick Steiner does an excellent job of you know playing it off and makes it hilarious and it, it makes you to be honest with you i want to see where it goes and what happens like week to week i already know where how it ends up but i just want to see the week to week progress and how rick handles it and, and things like that because i'm invested in rick steiner i don't care really what he's doing or how stupid it is he's going to make it work and uh that's how good he is at this point yeah i agree with you and i had mentioned before how i think i like parts of norman's gimmick but he's not really the guy to sell that gimmick i don't know that anyone else could do the gimmick that's been given to Rick Steiner here and get it all over to the way he has. It's like the perfect fit. I don't know that anybody else could play this part as well as Rick Steiner's been playing this part. Me either. Promo time with Terry Funk. He talks with Jim Ross about Ric Flair's upcoming press conference next week. He says Ric Flair was once a god, or the god, of the NWA, but Terry Funk is the devil, and he's raising hell. Funk tells Ric Flair to make the right decision next week, uh, basically warning Flair to retire. Uh, because if Flair does return, Funk will hunt him down and I guess finish Flair off for good. Uh, just a basic promo here from Terry Funk. Nothing fancy. I almost feel like, I'm not saying he did it on purpose, but it almost felt like Funk's promos here have been dumbed down to a degree just because it's the week for Lex Luger to get over. I mean, I know that's probably not why, but it, it worked out kind of well here. 
Luger shines in the spotlight of the promos this week. Terry Funk kind of takes a back seat with some more mundane type basic promos. Yeah, I doubt that's how it was done, but <laughs> it worked out said, well. Man, you can't you, you can't knock him out of the park every week, and Terry Funk's been on a roll ever since he's been back. So, oh yeah, he's afforded one ba- one bad weekend, I guess. Yeah, and even his bad weekends not as bad as others. I mean, it's just I guess he's been so good that it's hard to accept him doing just a, a typical adequate promo, which is really what these are. They're not really bad. They're just nothing special, and we've been getting so many special things. I guess I've been spoiled, I guess would be the word to use here. So, But, yeah, nothing fancy, but Terry Funk gets the job done, and I look forward to seeing uh, his response to Ric Flair's announcement next week. We learned that War Games is coming to the Great American Bash, and oh, yeah, a pay-per-view with a two-ring battle royal, and since there's two rings out there, hey, let's just overkill this. Let's just throw War Games on the card, too. Absolutely phenomenal. I love it. Can't wait. And we closed the show with Eddie Gilbert. I was waiting for him to throw a fireball at Jim Ross here for costing him his main event money here on, on the Saturday night show. But instead, Eddie Gilbert brings out wildfire Tommy Rich, who is returning to the NWA. We get a promo from Tommy Rich. Rich then leaves. And then uh, Jim Ross stops Eddie Gilbert. He goes, hey, show me how, how you do that fire thing there. Show me how you do that. Eddie Gilbert refuses to give up his secret. And then Gary Hart confronts the two. And uh, Eddie and Gary Hart get into a kind of... Uh, a verbal joust of sorts with Gary Hart winding up calling Missy Hyatt a few names. Eddie takes exception to that, attacks Gary Hart. We wind up seeing Muda attack Eddie Gilbert from behind with the kendo stick, and you'll hear some shots here. I grabbed this audio bite. I wanted to play it for everyone. Listen to the whole thing play out. Welcome back, fans, to World Championship Wrestling. We only have a couple of minutes left in the program here with Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert. You got to understand you got a friend with you. Jim, I've got a surprise. Everybody here already knows he's here. I want to welcome back to the NWA the one and only Tommy Wolfrich. All right, Tommy. Welcome back, man. You know, it's a pleasure to be back. You know, Tommy Rich was here. I was one of the pioneers of the NWA and TBS. And I'd just like to say, you know, I heard Lex Luger out here talking about he didn't want to side pitches. He didn't want to do that. Well, I remember a time in 1981 in Augusta, Georgia, if it hadn't been for all these people out here, Tommy Rich wouldn't have beat Harley Race for the NWA World Heavyweight title. So let me tell you something, brother. Lex Luger, Terry Funk, Ric Flair, I want everybody to know Wildfire is back, and I'm going to be on fire. Hey, hey, and I want to say one more thing. Next week, I won't be in this suit. I will have my tights on, and I will be TC. All right, Tommy, thank you a lot. We'll see you next time. Eddie, wait a minute. Hey. I want to I want to interview the Eddie Gilbert. I've seen two Eddie Gilberts here in the last few weeks. I know both sides very well, my friend. There's a there's a side that likes to go by the rules, and there's another side that's a little crazy. And I saw you try to throw fire at the Great Muda. How'd you do that? I mean, what'd you do? Why'd you do that? That fire thing. Jim Ross, I'm the only person that knows about that, and I will remain that way too. Wait a minute, hey guys, we're back on the air, fellas. Let's, 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 hold Why on didn't you here. Bring him out here. Why didn't you bring Muda out here? Because bring him with you. I am not going to put him in a position. We're almost out of time, guys. Oh, yeah? If that bimbo would have kept her out of her business, What'd you call her? I could call her a lot more if I wasn't on TV, brother. And I guarantee you, you could. Hey, come on now, Eddie. Eddie Gilbert right here in the set. I'm going to get out of the way. Eddie Gilbert hammering. Wait a minute, here comes the great Muda. Muda blows the red right in his eyes. 
that was just a three-minute segment. What a show this week here on TBS. Yeah, the show was crazy. It's beginning to end. Uh, it never stopped. Everything was good. Everything made a point. Everything was a part of the major angles that we have going on here. And it, it's just, if you blink, you miss something. That last segment was awesome. Eddie, Eddie Gilbert's rocking a all-white, like, long-sleeve shirt. And so when he got missed it with that red, it was just covered in red. It looked like blood was splattered all over it. And uh, it was just an excellent way to end this show. Like, everything about this show is just awesome. It's one of the best ones we've watched so far. I don't know that I've ever seen a TV program, and I know this episode was only an hour, but I don't know if I've ever seen an hour TV program where everything on the entire show tied into something. Of course, a lot of the show was based around the Freebirds and the Midnights and Gordy and Dr. Death. But then we had a Sting match, which was really only there to get Sting out there to cut a promo about Lex Luger to get Lex Luger out there to cut that big promo, that the promo of his career. And even here, obviously, we have the Eddie Gilbert feud with Muda uh, taking another turn here as Eddie Gilbert did the fireball in the clash, and now it escalates here. As not only is Missy taking the mist, now Eddie Gilbert's taking the mist as well and beaten down with that, that kendo stick uh, as part of the bash tour. That's kind of you know selling point for the bash. But even Tommy Rich, he's, he's made his return, and it kind of seemed weird to just throw Tommy Rich's return in here at the tail end of a, a show in the middle of an angle with Eddie Gilbert and Muda. But it even tied into the Luger promo because Tommy Rich references being here. He was the Hulk Hogan in Georgia at one point in the early 80s. And here he is. He's back after all these years on TBS. And it was the fans that got behind him and enabled him to beat Harley Race for the world title back in 1981. And now that he's back, he, he feels disrespected or he feels that the NWA and the world title and the fans especially are disrespected based on Luger's comments. So Tommy Rich takes exception to Luger's comments. So everything on this entire show ties into something. It's just an amazing episode of TV, a great hour of TV. Yeah, hands down. Like I said, this is probably the best TV we've seen uh, since we started doing this. And that covers a lot of ground. Yeah, everything hit. They didn't miss anything. This was a grand slam. It was awesome. It was very entertaining. And we move on to our final show of this episode. It's the main event for June 25th, and it's, Jim Ross replacing Lance Russell uh, along with Polly Dangerously now and because Ross needs a fourth fucking show. Uh, Power Hour, Worldwide, World Championship Wrestling, now the main event. Jim Ross has uh, basically taken over 80% of NWA television. And as good and as great as the Lex Luger promo was on World Championship Wrestling, the segment that opens up this show I can't call it as good as that promo, but it's a great complimentary piece. It's the continuation of a great weekend for Lex Luger here. As Lex Luger enters the ring to take on the almighty Lee Scott, the former two-time, two-time VIP jobber of the month. And in a pre-match promo, Lex Luger basically teases a U.S. title match here. He asks Lee Scott if he'd like a, a, a U.S. championship match. And Luger makes Scott uh, answer him and reply everything he says with, Yes, sir, Mr. Luger. Even when he makes a mistake, Luger corrects him, makes him go back and say, yes, sir, Mr. Luger. I thought Lee Scott was excellent in this promo. He knows what's expected of him. He delivers his lines well versus most jobbers who kind of mumble when they're forced to talk or they stare down at their feet. Scott did a great job here as a character. Lex asks him if he believes in himself. Yes, sir, Mr. Luger. He gives Lee a contract to sign for the U.S. title. Scott signs it. He writes uh, his signature on the back of the referee. Lex even tells him, I'll do you one better. Luger offers to lay down 
and see if Scott can hold him down for a three count. Just make it that easy for Scott. All he has to do is hold Lex down. And I had this vision in my head of Lex basically kicking out on one or two and throwing Lee Scott halfway across the ring, but we don't even get that. In classic heel fashion, Luger hands the microphone over to Scott, and as Scott's taking the microphone, Luger just plows him over with a clothesline, knocks him the fuck right out, and places his foot on his chest, and Lex even rests his hand on the top rope as he just makes this nonchalant cover and gets the one, two, three. I don't even know if the bell even sounded, but Lex gets the win here in a matter of seconds. I thought this was a great segment. Yeah, it was awesome. It was just a continuation of the, the week, the two weeks that Luger's have, Luger has had on this episode of The Grenade. He's knocked it out of the park. He's rejuvenated his career. He's taking the ball and running with it, and he, he's everything's been awesome with him. I, I keep on saying that, but it, there's really no other way to describe it. Whatever you want to use to describe it, it's what this has been, and um, very, very entertaining. And again, this is probably the best work of Luger's career as far as microphone and just getting a character over. This is great heel shit right here. He even threw me for a loop. Like, I didn't see what he was going to do coming, and I thought it was, when I saw, I thought the promo part with Lee Scott was great, but when he actually did what he did to him, it just took it up another notch for me. Yeah, same here. I was expecting the same as you. Yeah, he's just, just going to launch him like 10 feet in the air from the floor, which makes more sense for him because he likes to show off his muscles and his strength and shit like that. So that's what I was expecting as well. Uh, but I'll take a, a big-ass clothesline when somebody's not expecting it. Uh, that, that was just as good. So uh, nice stuff. Next match sees Dr. Death, Steve Williams, take on the bounty hunter. It's Al Green back with the mask on. I don't know who they think they're fooling. They, they intermix these matches, and they wear the same exact gear. But it's uh, Al Green back in the uh, hood as the bounty hunter. Jim Ross plays up that maybe the bounty hunter has been hired here by the Freebirds. I'm not sure what a job guy bounty hunter costs. I hope it wasn't much. Um, It's back and forth, kick and punch style. uh, Pretty stiff stuff. I think the bounty hunter, Al Green, makes a a good foil job guy opponent for Dr. Death because he's a little bigger, more stockier. It's more fun. At the end of the day, it's the Oklahoma Stampede that gets the win. Dr. Death with the win here in five minutes, one second. And it's on to the main event of the main event. It's Captain Redneck Dick Murdoch taking on Wild Bill Irwin. And uh, this match basically sees Dick Murdoch work the arm of Irwin quite a bit. Irwin keeps getting pissy. He's getting mad at the referee, Nick Patrick, repeatedly taking swings at Patrick, uh, trying to kick at Patrick. And finally, Dick Murdoch tries to give Nick Patrick an opening. Uh, Murdoch grabs Irwin from behind, holds his arms back, and tells Nick Patrick to to lay in some shots. And Nick Patrick, being a veteran of the game, it's, it was kind of fun here. The crowd really played into this. Patrick teases he's going to take a swing and, and nail Irwin, and the crowd's really, it's really getting over. The referee's going to pop Bill Irwin. Uh, but Nick thinks twice, and he, he doesn't do it, which was kind of a bummer. I would like to have seen it happen. But uh, the match goes on for a while, a whole lot of nothing going on. Dick Murdoch with a neck breaker across the top rope, which I thought was pretty cool. Drops the big death to elbow with if he wheel, baby. Uh, Murdoch winds up charging right into a boot in the corner from Irwin. Irwin makes the cover. Gets his feet on the ropes for some leverage. And maybe if Irwin wasn't completely shitty, he would have actually got his feet on the ropes before the three. I don't even think he gets his feet on the ropes till the actual three count. But Bill Irwin initially gets the win here in 12 and a half minutes. Or does he? It's Ricky Santana down to the ring. He tells Nick Patrick what happened. The match is restarted. Dick Murdoch real quick with the O'Connor roll. Rolls up Irwin and gets the win in another 15 seconds or so. So the whole match goes about 13 minutes. And Bill Irwin levels Dick Murdoch immediately after the bell, beats Murdoch down with the whip, chokes Murdoch out. I'm, I'm wondering, where was Ricky Santana? He was just out here 30 seconds ago pleading his case with Nick Patrick, and now he's not even out here to help Dick Murdoch. But Santana comes back out, runs out to make the save, and Irwin sucker punches him too, 
and then winds up choking Santana with the whip and actually hanging him over the top rope with the whip. And Dick Murdoch back in with a chair to run Irwin off. But Dickie never comes and checks on Santana, which I thought was funny. Santana came to Murdoch's aid. He even helped him get a win here. But really, Murdoch never even bothers to go check on Santana after the match. Um, other than that, I, I don't know. It was, a, it was an okay main event match, I guess. Yeah, I was bored with this one. It was just a lot of arm bars. And I'm kind of bored with Murdoch. He doesn't have really anything serious going on. And his matches are just work the arm, does some elbows, and then a brain buster. And it. He gets old. I mean, yeah, he can mix it up when he gets in there with a name like Muda and do some stuff that's different. But when it comes to these matches, he just doesn't seem like he cares. He's going through the motions. I feel like, I mean, he's obviously at a tier higher than an Irwin or a Santana, but I feel like he's really just there right now. They have nothing necessarily for him. He's just a a solid hand to have on your roster, I guess, at this point. Yeah. Uh, The angle at the end was cool. It was cool seeing uh, Ricky Santana there uh, come back and even though they had a draw last week's main event that we didn't get to see, it looks like they're still continuing on with this. So maybe another match of theirs will pop up to where we can get the payoff all in all decent angle to end the show. Uh, I thought it wasn't bad. Just the match was very boring. Yeah. And uh, in regards to things popping up, supposedly this show also included a music video of uh, Scott Hall set to when the going gets tough. I really hope that does pop up on a future show because I really want to see me some more Gators. I know Hall makes it to at least the Great American Bass pay-per-view, so we got a few weeks more of Scott Hall at the very least. And uh, that's pretty much the end of the main event here this week and the uh, second week here we're, that we're covering of the NWA on this episode of The Grenade. Not a bad show. No, it's uh, been fun. Lex Luger's really been MVP here for me this show. And um, next show, we're going to cover another couple weeks of NWA television. And that's going to include the big July 1st announcement, the press conference of Ric Flair and his decision of what he's going to do with his career. Is he going to retire and give up the world heavyweight championship? Or is he going to return to the ring? We're going to find out on the next episode. That's episode 13 of the grenade. Can't wait. I'm interested to see the press conference. We all know where he's, where it's heading. It's been a long time since I've actually seen it. And the way they've built it up and pushed these promos, it, you get pretty excited to see it. You want to know what Flair's announcement is going to be. So that's a big-time segment in itself that I'm definitely looking forward to. And I'm actually excited to see Power Hour to see how, how well they hype it up because it's only a day later. So that's going to be interesting to see as well. Yeah, I'm definitely interested to see more of the 1989 version of the Power Hour. I know on the next show, we're going to see our first look at the skyscrapers together. I think we're going to see our first look in the ring of uh, Flying Brian. Like I said, the Ric Flair angle and a whole lot more as we start building into the bash. We're heading into July, uh, which is an exciting time. I always love the Great American Bash. So not just 89, but just in general is one of my favorite pay-per-views. Summertime pay-per-views. You had SummerSlam in the WWF. Great American Bash and the NWA, so I'm pretty stoked uh, as we get moving into the summer months here. And so, Steve, man, I want to thank you again for joining me uh, on this ride through 1989, the NWA. Thanks, man, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again in the next episode. Absolutely, man. It was my pleasure. It's been a blast. Uh, it was a great show, and uh, I'm excited for the next one. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Okay, guys, we're heading into the home stretch. Congrats once again to our Halloween free prize giveaway winners. And a reminder that we've got more free prize giveaway contests coming very soon. So stay tuned and follow us on Twitter at Rasslin Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade for your chance to win future prizes. 
And we'll be back next week for two more weeks of NWA news and TV reviews. As we move into the month of July of 1989, we're only three weeks away from our next free prize giveaway as well. That will be announced as part of our Great American Bash 89 Watch Along. More news on that next week. So keep following and make sure you retweet and tell your friends to follow at Wrestling Grenade. Don't forget, we're only one week away from the debut edition of Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. It's an in-depth look at the entire Monday Night War featuring TV reviews, backstage news, and those ever-important TV ratings. That's Monday Warfare debuting November 9th on WrestleCopia.com and your favorite podcast streaming apps. Once Monday Warfare gets up and running, we'll likely be moving the grenade to a different day of the week. I'm thinking Tuesday or Wednesday. We'll have more info on that next week as well, so keep an eye out for that. But rest assured, the grenade is going nowhere, and we will be back next week, as I said, with two more weeks of NWA TV. So for now, this is Ray Russell for Steve Ekstat saying, from pillar to post and coast to coast, you pull the pin and we'll pick up the pieces right here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. See you next week. Don't miss it. Be there. Lex, can I have your autograph? No, you can't.